0: You're listening to an Airwave Media podcast.
1: Christopher Media, let's make some noise. If you want,
2: Ladies and gentlemen, go go for a wild wild ride with the watusi cats. But beware, the sweetest kittens have the sharpest claws. For your own safety, see faster pussy cats. Kill kill wild women, wild wheels race the fastest pussy cats, and they'll beat you to death. So far, woman, belted, buckled, and booted. You're wasting yourself on this kid and hanging this up for nothing. For nothing? It's got nothing to do with the money. She is the money. Jack and Jill, they make a the mafia look like brownies. Hey, he's a big one, ain't he? Hmm? That must have the way to his ears. Yeah. Ten percent of your action be enough for anyone. Too much for one man to handle. And again, you never can tell. You girls are a bunch of nudists, or you just uh, short of clothes? Right now, you're first on my list.
0: And I always try to talk.
3: You've only got one channel. And your
2: channel's busy tuning in outside. You really should be AM and FM. So who do I get to take care of? The muscle man? You got two of everything. And some left over. You
0: did want...
4: You wanted big breast or thigh, darling? Why don't you take one of each, son? They uh, both look tender. He's got a big motor to
2: feed. <laughs> but give you a use My motor never roasts out, baby.
4: You were too rough the last time.
2: All right, here's how it works. Everybody's got to go. You name it, we've got it. Faster pussycat kills. Her, delivers tons more than the opposition. Unladylike karate chops, ungentlemanly haymakers, spirited gymnastics, corrective table etiquette, sandbox jousting, or a muscle-bound cat wrestling with a roaring sports car that's intent upon squashing him like a grape. Bizarre kidney and chassis-rattling chases, and for the first time on the screen, a haymaking, belly-busting, karate-chopping, judo-flipping fight to end them all. Superwoman against man. The prize, life itself. Slashing, (coughs) tackling, gouging, hacking, flipping, belting, smashing, and blasting. Muscle to muscle, bone to bone. For an incredible evening's entertainment, a film so totally satisfying, see Russ Meyer's Faster Pussycat Kill Kill.
5: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Miguel Rodriguez. Welcome to violence. Also <laughs> along with us for this hellbound ride into the deep desert is Ms. Beth Accomando. Thank you. If you like to see beautiful girls breaking joculatory-type he-men men's spines, then you're going to dig this episode on Russ Meyer's 1966 film Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. The film stars Tura Satana as Varla, Haji as Rosie, and Lori Williams as Billy, three go-go dancers, fast women who love fast cars. They go out racing in the desert where they'd accidentally on purpose kill a man and kidnap his girlfriend before finding out about an old miser and his two sons living in a remote shack with a fortune of cash stashed there. We're going to be getting into spoilers for this 50-year-old film, which frankly should have a deluxe 50th anniversary release and would be playing theatrically around the world if there was any justice, but there's not. We know that now. So, Miguel, (laughs) when was the first time you saw Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, and what did
6: you think? Oh, man, I'm going to say this was like high school. I got to this one pretty late. In fact, I uh, I knew the band Faster Pussycat before I knew this film, but uh, one thing that struck me almost immediately was the opening go-go dance scene, which uh, was my I remember very clearly is my introduction to the beautiful marriage between kind of cult exploitation film uh, nerddom, which I was very much a part of. And the burlesque go-go movement of the sixties, uh, you know, with you know, Betty Page and, and a lot of her contemporaries, uh, where this was such a, a thing, and and I would start looking for other films that featured these elements to them, and and uh, and they are out there, but this is that first scene with the go-go dancing and and just how sudden it appears on screen. I was blown away. I loved that. But the movie as a whole is, was just—it's it, mind-blowingly good. I love it. How about you, Beth?
0: I can't remember exactly when I've seen it, but I had—I—I I feel like Varla has been a part of my life for a long time. I love her. To me, she is what a feminist icon should be. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> why, but the thing about the film and it's still rare today, is that these were women who were not passive. They were actively making decisions about the course of their lives. They were the catalyst in the film. They're not reactive to what's going on. They're bad, and they're not making any excuses for it. And I love them. And Varla, Tura Satana is brilliant. I mean, the Her look, the black hair with the harsh bangs and that impressive cleavage that goes on forever. (laughs) And she's just – she's awesome. And she does snap men over her knee and, you know, makes no apologies for that. To me, that's the kind of female characters I wanted to see. I didn't want to see, you know, the Doris Day's career woman types. I didn't want to see these kind of – positive role models, (laughs) I wanted to see these characters. That's why I also love film noir femme fatales, is I want to see these women that are in charge and sometimes scaring the shit out of men. And I like that.
5: I saw this one as part of a double feature. We had uh, several cinema societies at the University of Michigan, and there was one night where they showed Faster Pussycat Kill Kill and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. And it's no... (laughs) small (laughs) wonder that we are kicking off 2017 with Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and Faster Pussycat Kill Kill because even though I've seen other Russ Meyer films and I love other Russ Meyer films you kind of always go back to your first love and these movies just blew me away and seeing Faster Pussycat with us albeit small audience probably on 16 millimeter Absolutely fantastic! I just was completely blown away by it. I mean, it just grabs you from that opening. You know, you're talking about the go-go dancers, but even before that, with that opening narration mm-hmm. and that kind of visual soundtrack that you're seeing and watching the guy speaking and just this kind of poetry that he's laying on us, Daddy O, about the you know the <laughs> rapaciousness of women. You know, they, some might be your secretary or the dancer at a go-go club. This his whole opening narration is just a thing of wonder ladies and gentlemen
4: welcome to violence the word and the act while violence cloaks itself in a plethora of disguises its favorite mantle still remains sex violence devours all it touches its voracious appetite rarely fulfilled yet violence doesn't only destroy it creates and molds as well Let's examine closely, then, this dangerously evil creation, this new breed, encased and contained within the supple skin of woman. The softness is there, the unmistakable smell of female, the surface, shiny and silken, the body yielding, yet wanton. But a word of caution, handle with care and don't drop your guard. This rapacious new breed prowls both alone and in packs, operating at any level, any time, anywhere, and with anybody. Who are they? One might be your secretary, your doctor's receptionist, or a dancer in a go go club.
5: And then, yeah, to throw us into that go go club. And I never really knew why they called go-go dancers, go-go dancers, but apparently it's because of the old lascivious men yelling, go baby, go at them. Yeah,
6: yeah that's it. <laughs> okay.
5: But I also did get to see this one a second time theatrically. There was a revival of it. Um, I want to say like 94, 95, something like that. And yeah. seeing it again with an audience, and it was a pretty full house at that point, was great. Seeing it in a Post-La or Sisto Devil Music Volume 1 world was even stranger, because at this point, La Sixer Sisto by White Zombie came out in 92, really kind of hit its stride in 93. So by seeing this in 94, 95, when Varla's laying out her lines in the film— I mean, people are roaring in the audience because we know all of these disparate lines from these white zombie films, from like Thunder Kiss 65 kind of thing. And so when she's like,
4: now let's move. But let's take the back door.
5: It has even more power to it because people are just like, I know these lines. Why do I know these things? So it was great for me seeing the movie and then pretty soon after hearing that record and knowing, kind of having that inside thing being like, oh, yeah, that's from uh, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. And we were fortunate enough to have a video store that I don't know how much... The VHSs for these were, I want to say you would pony up, what, $120 for a VHS tape of of some of these Russ Meyer films in the early 90s, and they did have a few of them, so I was able to see Faster Pussycat again um, in between there and expose it to my housemates and... I think they appreciated it. Maybe they appreciated it just for that cleavage that goes on for miles. But I think other people appreciated it for just this kind of crackerjack dialogue and the beauty that this film has. And that was the thing I couldn't get over was just how gorgeous this movie is.
0: Yes, it looks awesome. The black and white photography. I mean, that black and white photography is made for Tura Satana she looks so good in it because it's all about these harsh contrasts and it's breathtaking.
6: Well, like, and not just Tura, but a lot of the characters are composed in their shots in ways that give them some kind of gravitas. Uh, even the uh, weight lifting scene with the muscle bound <laughs> brother is uh, is beautifully shot and beautifully lit. And, uh, and I think Russ Meyer's you know his his background as a as a war photographer really came into play for this one, particularly with the black and white. He knew when during the day to shoot. He would always shoot when the sun was low on the horizon uh, and make his actors you know wait for the perfect time to shoot. And uh, he was very particular about how they looked, where they sat, how they were blocked and arranged. And all of that comes through. And it's, you know, for a film that this, you know, this kind of gets lumped uh, with a lot of cheapy exploitation films of that time. And it kind of deserves, like it has, uh, to rise above because of elements like that.
0: Well, and it was genuinely cheap to make. He only Mm -hmm. spent like $40,000 on it. But last night, we actually watched a U.K. release of it that had a commentary track by Russ Meyer, and... He was enamored with his own black and white <laughs> photography. About every 10 minutes, he would say like, damn, that looks good. <laughs> and it did. It did genuinely.
6: Did you uh, Did you ever see this with his commentary, Mike? I don't think I have. I didn't know that that existed. Yeah, it's the Arrow release. If you have an all-region DVD player, they released a big box set that I uh – I'm jealous that Beth has and, and I really (laughs) recommend it because we were playing with it last night. But we did, we watched this film twice in a row last (laughs) night, once without commentary. And then, uh, we watched a documentary with, uh, three interviews with eat with all of the women, all of the ladies who I'm sure we're going to talk about later on. And then we watched Faster Pussycat again, this time with the Russ Meyer commentary. And it is, it's just ridiculously entertaining. And <laughs> Meyer tends to like uh, ramble after a while, but every now and again he makes these, you know, great anecdotes and, and uh, he'll notice some interesting things about the film. But that is definitely true. I feel like every 10 minutes or so he'd be like, man that, that black and white yeah That it just look at how the light's playing and he would praise his own film it's great <laughs> <laughs> well he had such an artist's eye and that's the thing
5: that I think really throws people is when they see this movie for the first time yeah they're expecting something cheap and something tawdry and they get the tawdriness of it definitely but they don't get the they're not going to walk in here thinking that this is an art film you know I know Joe Sarno has been called like the Igmar Bergman of the the, the sleaze circuit, but this is up there. I mean, I think one of the uh, previews for a Russ Meyer film, he calls himself the rural Fellini, and I can definitely <laughs> see that. You know, he does have such a, a beautiful eye. I mean, just, you know, th- to use the women's bodies to frame things. I mean, I always mm-hmm. think of that that image of Varla and Rosie on either side of the screen mm-hmm. as uh, the vegetable is pushing up the old man in the wheelchair and just the way that they're so perfect. Perfectly framed on screen in the way that the vegetable and the old man are right in between them. Just gorgeous stuff. I mean, I I guess in that way that he could almost be the the rural Kubrick in that case.
6: (laughs) Well, he's technically a very capable artist. Uh, And the thing that is just so fun for all of us fans of his work is... He will construct his art around things that he sincerely loves, and that comes through. So, you know, for example, there's a uh, a shot of Billy walk in her tiny white shorts <laughs> walking toward the camera. And uh, I've always noticed this shot. And even when we saw it the first time, Beth and I both snickered at the ridiculous, like, crotch coming at us. Mm. But then when we see it with the Russ Meyer uh, um, commentary – he goes yeah and look at her crotch it looks that's a great looking crotch in those little shorts <laughs> well
0: and then when she walks away from the camera he admires her cheeks too yeah and both I'm of like, them oh. are shot
6: to display those things that he's showing affection for in this uh, commentary so i can just picture him during the uh, you know putting together the shots and, and and setting up the camera saying you know what I really want to feature her crotch in this moment. And he does it perfectly. And it looks, I mean, <laughs> it's both tawdry and kind of uh, oddly artistic, as you as you put. Well,
5: the thing I like about this, too, is it is so much the art of the tease. You know, even though mm-hmm. you see so much of the cleavage that's going on in this, that they are dressed. And that it's more about the idea of how these women might look if they're naked. But they're so well-dressed even if it is small shorts and everything but just that whole idea of this being more of a t-show this being 1966 this is not x-rated but you get that titillation and i love that he is able to give us that throughout so much of this movie while he's telling us this incredible melodramatic story
0: yeah but i think also with tura satana Mm. It's more than a tease. It's also about intimidation. I mean, she's got this cleavage, and it's this V that comes down like the point of a knife. And it's so formidable. (laughs) Like, I mean, she walks around like— nobody can mess with her i mean none of the men none of the the men in this film are just ridiculously ineffectual (laughs) and not you know and none of the women either so she's just this formidable figure and in her case i think her cleavage is beyond just like a tease like wow that's a really impressive looking woman and she's gorgeous um And she even gets that great line where the gas station attendants looking down her blouse and she's like, you won't find it down there, Columbus. It's also about her being like just this figure that seems to be larger than life and that you just are not going to like cross this woman. And that sense of power, I think, even though she's a highly sexual figure, you don't get that same feeling of this objectification that you get sometimes in some other films that male directors are doing with female actresses where you really feel like they are nothing more than a sex object meant mm-hmm. for people to oogle at she is this really strong and powerful figure that she cuts in this film
6: it's really important to note on on that 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 line with the gas station attendant is uh, really firm in my brain not just from this watch but from the beginning. Whereas, especially when this film was made, but definitely it's still an attitude now that if a woman dresses provocatively, it's because she's trying to impress a man or impress someone else. But with Varla, she's clearly doing this for herself. Mm -hmm. Like, this is – she's doing what she wants to do because she likes it. And uh, and that – moment where uh where the she catches the gas station attendant staring down her her, her top is, is just great because it, it clearly defines that. That uh hey look you, you know, this is this is not for you, this is for me.
5: And Varla's not just in charge of all the men in the world, but very much in charge of the women as well. I love the when how she once they get out of the go go club and they're doing their racing out in the desert, when they Stop And Billy goes in for this kind of impromptu swim that (laughs) Varla is not going to, you know, chip a nail or anything. She's going to send uh, Rosie in to get her, you know, just like you do the dirty work. I'm just here to basically look good. You guys do. You know, you take care of this. I love that interaction that happens between the three women. It is it is wonderful to see the way that they go at it. And also, you know, just my own thing. I love Haji and her amazing intelligence accent as well that, that, <laughs> did that sound like you know when you were growing up is that exactly how people spoke
0: <laughs> it, it sounded like chico chico marx chico marx you know i mean that's the kind of level of realism that she captured with that but it, yeah that was perfectly fine because everything in the film is of a cartoonish level so the fact that she had that accent was perfect
6: it fit right in
1: how long you're going to let the cookie bro the showboat like that
0: Mike, I do want
6: to ask you, did you know that Varla and Haji are lovers in the film? I never picked
5: up on that. I mean, I kind of <gasps> No, <laughs> no. I, I wouldn't Go have, back and rewatch it. <laughs> okay. It wouldn't have, you know, um I, I know that Billy makes some references that kind of mm-hmm. uh infer that, but I never really thought for sure that
6: they were, you know, getting it on between the sheets. Yes. Uh that would be you know, there's a scene where uh where Varla is making out with Kirk and and uh, but Rosie, you know, kind of peeks on them and sees, and then she she has this scene of of torment where she's really upset about that. And there's some other suggestive scenes like where uh, Rosie would go up and light her cigarette, and they would kind of flirt with each other. And Russ Meyer kept a lot of this kind of obtuse uh to the point where not even the actresses themselves knew that they were supposed to be lovers (laughs) until after production was finished (laughs) and then he told them and they were like oh well we would have said some of these things a little bit differently right
0: (laughs) but you know i think the fact that he didn't tell them it came out anyway and Mm. it probably came out in a more kind of I don't want to use the word subtle to describe anything in a Russ Meyer film, but uh, it, it came out in kind of a, a more natural sort of way than if they were really kind of camping it up. But I mean, I think it's obvious from the beginning that there's some sort of electricity between the two of them. Talking
5: about Varla and more, the one thing that always impresses me even more than the cleavage is the way that <laughs> teresa and tana delivers those lines and the way she just basically spits out every single line that she has she every just has line. this intensity to her where just everything is it's it's a
0: karate chop
5: oh god with everything
0: the, is a karate chop with
5: the, the audible hi ya to it you know it's just <laughs> yeah she is amazing
0: she talked about her audition for the part with russ meyer in the interview that was on this dvd and she said that she went in and kind of her first delivery was the one that we see in the film and then she offered russ a kind of a softer one a little sexier kind of uh play on it and he was like no the first one (laughs) that's what we want and it is it's this it's this i don't give a damn kind of delivery which Again, even for women today, actresses today, there are so few roles where you have actresses playing parts where they don't care at all about what any of the other characters say. In fact, Miss Sloan is one of the few films I've seen recently where you really have this kind of a ruthless female character who doesn't need to have a boyfriend. She does have to break down and cry once, though, unfortunately. But um she's the smartest one in the room. She's the toughest one in the room. And you don't really get those kind of female characters very often. Even when you have female leads and even when you have kind of kick-ass heroines, they're still, they still tend to be reacting to male characters or, you know, in some way not being the catalyst for their stories. Well, one thing I
5: appreciate, too, is that we have such a wonderful counterpoint of Varla, which is when we see the young girl and her boyfriend and just (laughs) so you know, they're just like this little island of normalcy inside of this sea of of depravity that is shown to us throughout the rest of this movie and just oh god, and and the introduction of her character of of, uh, Linda. (laughs) Been running some timing trials?
4: We know how fast we can go. Could time that heap with an (laughs) hourglass.
2: Everyone mention my figure?
5: <laughs> Every time I see that, I roar with laughter. It is just one of the best things. And then her delivery and the way she's kind of shimmying up to the <laughs> the rest of the action.
6: Oh my God, she is wonderful. Well, it's nice that you bring her up as a counterpoint to Varla, which of course she is. Apparently, um, Tura Satana was so dedicated to this film that uh, that she would in real life kind of torment Susan <laughs> Bernard who, who played Linda uh, to actually make her fear her gen- genuinely. Hmm. And so if you listen to interviews with Susan Bernard, she talks about how, you know, everybody tells me that Tura is really nice when you meet her, but I didn't think so.
0: <laughs> and she described these women as towering over her and <laughs> She was a little yeah, she was definitely intimidated.
5: She was sixteen. Yeah, I heard that her mother had to be on set with her.
0: Ooh, Ooh and that, that didn't make Tura Satana happy at all. She said she never had so many stoppages during scenes like my my daughter doesn't have enough lines, she's not being shot well enough. And,
6: she oh. did apparently eventually tell Russ, uh, it's either the mom or me.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and we know we know who won that yeah. battle. Right.
5: <laughs> And we've got such a wonderful opening for all this stuff. We've talked about the the, the narration, the go-go dancing scene, the uh, racing out in the, in the desert, the whole time trials. And then we get to the first of many murders in this film. Which, they're, they're, by the end, I mean, there are bodies everywhere. But to have this crazy fight go on between Varla and Linda's boyfriend... And really over nothing, but it just kind of sets the whole plot into motion, which is one of those beautiful things that I love about Russ Meyer films, is that these things are just so melodramatic, and... It's basically it's she's almost like uh, Chekhov's uh, karate chop. You know, she's got the power <laughs> and she's going to use it in here. And, and we get to see her take this guy out and just uh, oh, my God, it is, it is wonderful to see her destroy this guy, this all American guy. And just is emblematic of what this movie stands for is just the way
6: that just
5: Mr. and Mrs. America are going to get completely fucked up by these
6: girls. Well, that scene's also great because not only does she kick the crap out of him and eventually murder him with her bare hands in a very gruesome manner, I might add. That that's still a kind of cringeworthy crack when it happens. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> she precedes that by making fun of masculinity in general. Like you know, if we think about like some of the icons of masculinity, Lancelot has to be at the top of the list. And right before the fight, he's running toward them and she's got the timer that she stole from Linda. And her line is...
0: Let's just time Lancelot as he comes charging to the rescue.
6: It's a great jab at that whole notion of masculinity and, and how she's about to just take it down.
0: Well, and she also wants to take it down in part because it's I think she objects to the fact that Linda is so subservient to this guy and it just annoys the heck out of her because it's like women shouldn't be in that subservient position in her from her point of view. And so anything that kind of supports that needs to be taken down. And she's making fun of not just his masculinity but also making fun of Linda for being stupid enough to, you know, let this guy run her life.
6: It is definitely on purpose that this also was after... Linda kind of scared that he was going to be mad at her for not taking the time trials. It's like, oh, he's going to be so mad at me. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that, too
5: yeah they are just disgusted with her at how weak willed she is when it comes to that
0: well, and should we reveal what Russ Meyer called called that actor? He said the actor who was oh, playing yeah. the boyfriend <laughs> with the, because like and he looked he has those buck teeth and he looks like a Victorian mule <laughs> <laughs> and I have no idea why victorian
6: it was a great reveal in the commentary because Russ Meyer doesn't say anything with a lot of umph he he's he he gives the whole commentary like he's lounging with a drink, <laughs> you know, on a recliner sofa, getting his arms or shoulders massaged by some ladies. And he's like, oh, oh yeah, this guy's got – look at those buck teeth. He looks like a Victorian mule. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's the funniest thing.
0: So he didn't have much, much respect for him either, so –
5: and really, the the bulk of the movie. You talked about the gas station scene with Mickey Fox as uh, Squirrel. Yes. Uh, the uh, gas station. Great Fox. Oh my God, he is terrific. <laughs> Every time he shows up in a Russ Meyer film, it is is just terrific. Um, his role in Mud Honey is great. Yeah, he uh, kind of sets things in motion by pointing out the old man and the vegetable, and telling Varla about the money that they have out there. Now, apparently, the go go dancing is not making her much bread, so she. She gets the idea in in her head that she's going to go for the long green and take this guy out, go out to the the farm. I don't think immediately murder is in her mind, but she definitely wants to get that money and comes up with some pretty great things right off the bat. I mean, the way that they explain what Linda is doing there, uh, why she's tied up. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty, pretty darn smart. And. Really, the bulk of the movie takes place at this shack with this weird family dynamic happening on both sides of the gender line. Because you've got the three main women. You've got these three men who are living alone. It's almost like this perverted uh, Brady Bunch that we have going on (laughs) here. And then Linda kind of right in the middle as this picture of normalcy because I have to say Kirk the one son seems like he's going to be the nice one he seems like uh, I was almost reminded of like the um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre where there's kind of the normal one and the other two are (laughs) crazy well Kirk is kind of the normal one and then you've got the old man and the vegetable and the old man his dialogue is right up there with Farless for me as far Mm -hmm. as the way that he spits out his lines and the way that he is just so angry at the world and (laughs) some of his things that he gets to say about putting women in pants and now there's a democrat in the white
6: house just (laughs) classic classic lines oh man he is the perfect like if you're gonna call him villain but i'll call him an antagonist to varla because there's no real hero in this movie (laughs) but (laughs) but he is the perfect perfect antagonist for her, antagonizing force for her, because A, he is the very definition of a misogynist. He literally despises women and goes out of his way to kidnap and kill them, as we later find out. Stuart Lancaster, who plays the old man, it's another example of these actors giving more than what is generally expected of a film like this he sells it in every scene he's in and uh, and he also in <laughs> one of my favorite lines is in his introductory where he's complaining about Kirk you know you talk about Kirk being the nice guy Kirk's also the uh, the smart one the college kid and uh, and there's a line where where the old man says50
4: bucks for three lousy books there ain't a picture in one of them
6: you get a lot about both characters from a line like that. So it's hilarious. It's well delivered. And also it's character building. I mean, it's, it's archetype building, but it's still really fun. And, and and it holds a lot. of. I like it. It holds a lot of water.
5: I want to talk about that dinner scene because I think the dinner <laughs> scene is really kind of the heart of the movie here where you get to see so many of these interactions between these characters playing out. And it almost kind of puts the movie into yet another new direction where it's like, okay, we're reforming our alliances here and we're going to kind of spin off from from that moment where we have now Varla decides, okay, Kirk's the one that I'm going to seduce and we're going to kind of throw the girl <laughs> to the wolves as it were. Uh, and just the way that the characters interact, the way that Billy is getting drunk, I just, there's so many great things happening at this dinner scene. I mean, the dinner scene is almost a masterclass of filmmaking in and of itself just because it is you can watch that and get so many things out of it and it really to me anyway it feels like the heart of the film
0: well and also you're taking this very american middle class thing you know everybody sits down at the dinner table we say grace this is where we have the family together and it's perverting the whole thing and it's great it's 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 twisting that American notion of what family is just in the same way that Varla making fun of Lancelot uh, and and his girlfriend is twisting that whole notion of male-female relationships at that time. So it it's great for that. It's like, you know, tearing down the white picket fence.
6: And you also get to see every character kind of show the best of themselves where the old man is actually – trying to speak somewhat amicably in a way to to Varla talking about you know her appetites (laughs) and uh and poor uh, the boy, the, the vegetable, the, uh, the you know, the muscle man is just, he's ignoring everything and just trying to eat as much chicken as he can.
5: <laughs> I'm so reminded of, um, and I know that this one comes later, but it feels like this scene is so much a precursor to the dinner scene of Rocky Horror Picture Show, where <laughs> the vegetable is rocky and, you know, the old man is, is uh, either the old man is, is uh, Frankenfurter or Varla is, I'm not really sure, but even though those kind of, you know, laugh lines, like, that's a very tender subject, Dr. Scott. You know, those kind of <laughs> things,
3: you know,
5: it just feels like uh, maybe Richard O'Brien was a little uh, inspired by this dinner
6: scene. I would not be surprised in any way, shape or form. Well, by the time Rocky got made, Faster Pussycat w- uh, was a, a more well-known film. You know, it, it wasn't hugely well-known when it first came out in 66. So, Yeah. I I can definitely see that.
5: One thing that always happens with this movie is it's got one of the funniest titles ever, just because who is gonna name a movie Faster Pussycat Kill Kill? Just so wonderful and it just stands out so much. I mean other other Meyer films, yeah, pretty good, but when you get into things like Up and those kind of things, but you know, Beneath the Valley, the Ultra Vixen's pretty damn good title, but Faster <laughs> Pussycat Kill Kill might be
6: his best title. I think it is. And, and punctuation, too. It's not just the <laughs> title, but it's Faster Pussycat, Kill, Ellipses,
0: Kill. Isn't it double exclamation point?
6: No, it's just cat? one exclamation Well, each kill has its own exclamation yeah, point. So, so, yeah, you kind of get you, two. You get-
0: Once is not enough.
6: But the ellipses, though, the ellipses is what I just adore. Because <laughs> I just always want to, when I read it, I want to say Faster Pussycat, Kill, Kill. <laughs> Which is just, I love it.
5: I love how concerned the film is with revealing the old man's backstory and just how Mm -hmm. we're constantly getting little glimmers of this. I mean, you mentioned the whole thing about him kind of capturing women and and keeping them, and yeah, that's one part of it, and then finding out about the train. Like, when the train Mm -hmm. is introduced kind of out of nowhere, it's like, where did this train come from? (laughs) Is it actually here? You know, it feels like it's kind of like some stock footage from someplace else, but, and then to know that the train is, is is uh you know sets off the old man and then eventually finding out why that is. I mean just wonderful things as we go through here and it's- in any other movie the whole idea of Linda escaping not once but twice would be like oh for god's sakes really we just went through this it's almost <laughs> like you know trying to capture that alien in alien three and throw him in the in the Ironworks. it's like oh, okay it didn't work the first time are we gonna do this yeah oh god we're gonna do this again but with this it's like okay yeah she just keeps escaping and it kind of just lays on more of the melodrama as it goes on and kind of again respins where the alliance is lay and who's going to be working with who you know the the way that eventually Linda kind of you know manages to to almost turn Kirk around because we've had a few scenes of her with Kirk and then the way that he gets to see his father and the vegetable interacting with Linda you know kind of puts his mind into a different space so I love that even though it could be a trite thing of her constantly escaping it's handled very well and it doesn't become that
6: well, another reason it doesn't become that of a, a tedium of her escaping is both of the main times she escapes are also character-revealing moments for the reason she escapes. So the first time we get it because the old man tried to harm her in some way. You know, the probably molest her or hurt her or something. She runs away from him because of that. It, it takes a strong kind of catalytic moment for her to finally. T- try to hoof it through the desert you know and in her bikini in her bikini yeah (laughs) um and uh the second moment is really interesting too it's it's directly after dinner everybody kind of goes their own way because varla and haji want to find this money um but uh billy is getting wasted and passes out and what's Really important there is Billy at this point is drifting farther and farther away from her trio. And that's her getting drunk and passing out is really her deciding that she's going to leave them. She's going to say, you know, caution to the wind. I don't care if the cops get me. I'm not going to be part of this group anymore. And uh, and so we get the Billy moment from the second escape. So, you know, those those kinds of important reveals, they strengthen the, the multiple escape aspect that you're talking about.
5: And I love when things just finally start to go awry, and we get even more murders to the point where Varla <laughs> is killing everybody. And <laughs> no matter whether it be her former ally of Billy, whether it be the 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 vegetable, the scene with the vegetable in the car, oh my oh, God, man. one of the best
6: <laughs> i mean that that is Russ Meyer editing at his best the way that scene with the car just slowly going up and he's holding the car away you know the the close ups of his face um you know in in pain, the close up of his muscles the close up of the back tire. Uh, it,
0: everything and Farla about Barla getting pissed, oh,
6: yeah, yeah and it, it, she's getting pissed, but she, it's not the same pissed as the rest of the movie. If you look at her face, she's kind of like. Holy shit. She, yes. She, she's like, I can't believe this. She had no idea that that was going to be the result of her trying to crush him with her car. <laughs> but, she, I mean, she definitely steals herself in determination to really try it. And it's not Varla who quits. It's the car itself. It's a pretty amazing <laughs> scene. Well, can we talk about the music in that scene, too? I mean, just that that driving...
5: As she's revving that car and pushing and pushing and pushing, just it really builds it up well. I mean, we of course we've got one of the greatest theme songs of all time in this oh, film, yeah.
6: but the the rest of the score for this movie is just amazing. I mean, that scene is thrilling partially because this idea of slowly crushing someone with a car is really hideous. You know, it's not like the first time she hit him. Cause we have to remember this is after she already hit him with her car. Right. <laughs> the first time was at full tilt and he goes flying backward, like a rag doll. This time she wants to like, it's like, <laughs> you know, like a vice between hit crushing him between him, uh, uh, between a car and a big wall. And you know, If the car wins, it's going to be a really gruesome death. The fight that she has then with Kirk, I mean, just that
5: drag out, throw yeah. down, and with the claw thing that she's got going on. Because we've seen her. We know <laughs> what those hands can do. We know what lethal weapons she has. That is another moment where you're just hoping you kind of want her to win at the same time. You
0: absolutely want her to win. But I want her to
5: win. I really do. (laughs) I mean, I kind of don't care if, if morality is set right at the end of this film or not. I want (laughs) Varla to be victorious and I don't care if everybody else is dead.
0: Exactly. And and that's part of that's, that is actually what is the most subversive thing about the film is that Varla is so damn appealing and so damn magnetic that you are willing to throw morality out the window (laughs) in order to see your win. And, And in some ways, I think, and this is something that rating boards always have issues with, is like sometimes with a film like this, it's not any kind of nudity or it's not the cleavage that goes on forever. It's they don't like what it's saying and they can't put their finger on exactly what it is. But the fact that You know, a young girl like me could go in to see that film and go like, man, I love Varla. Like that's subversive to them. And I mean, the thing that was so great about Tura Satana is that she made those fight scenes totally convincing because she was capable of doing that kind of violence. And it wasn't this kind of girly fight that you see in a lot of movies or, you know, cat fight kind of violence. It looks like she's doing some damage, and you are worried that somebody's going to get hurt when she goes after them. It's kind of brilliant,
6: and it may be a happy accident because Russ Meyer just wanted to see this happen. But the fact that we have Rosie and Billy have a cat fight in the water and on the sand earlier in the film uh, just proves a great contrast to Varla's style of fighting. Mm-hmm. It's completely different, and it's great that you bring up you know how rough and tumble it is with with Kirk because you know one thing that's revealed when you hear interviews. With Torosatana is the first guy uh, Linda's boyfriend earlier in the film. The actor didn't really want to really get into it. He was kind of <laughs> reticent. But the actor who played uh, Kirk was like, all right, man, let's go. He he was totally 100 percent in. And so that fight seems even more intense. And and apparently, according to Russ Meyer, Tura Satana actually did the choreography for those fights, too. <laughs> she said, we should do this and we should do that. <laughs> and, you know, there's one part in that Kirk fight where he gets her on her back and starts like punching her in the stomach, not slapping her. He's like punching her <laughs> in the stomach. And it's you just don't see that in movies. They just went for it.
0: And she doesn't start getting all like, ah.
6: No, no, no. She's, she's still just fighting. like,
0: ah, it revs her up more and she's going to come at you with twice as much force. And it's important, too, that it's not a man that ends up killing her. Although I, I will say that is my one frustration in the film is how she is how she dies. She yeah. shouldn't. I didn't want her to die. No. I wanted a sequel. Even faster Pussycat. Astro Zombies? <laughs> That's not the same. No, it's
6: not the same.
0: But the fact that little mousy whiny Linda's the one who—remember,
6: it wasn't her; it was, it was the, the car.
0: Just Still. like it wasn't
6: Batgirl; it was the gun or whatever in that oh, terrible Batman movie. Man, <laughs> or Catwoman—I don't know that Christopher. But it was—it
0: was good that it wasn't—it wasn't a man who ended up taking her out.
6: Well, I mean and, – and I think, Mike, it goes to the point you made earlier, Mike, whereas Varla's real kind of o- opposite in this film is Linda. And so it, on a storytelling basis, it kind of – if someone is going to take her out, it kind of had to be Linda.
5: All right. We're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. The first is with Dean DeFino, author of The Cultography on Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. And the second is with Jimmy McDonough, the author of Big Bosoms and Square Jaws, the biography of Russ Meyer. And we'll be back with those right after these brief
1: messages. Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts is a weekly podcast that discusses grindhouse and exploitation cinema. Your three hosts,
0: Mike, it's a quick. <laughs> Thank you. Come again.
1: Not racist no. at <laughs> all. Mark, if you bend over and you have what is essentially a pubic cottontail coming
5: out of the crack of your ass, you need to do some goddamn grooming.
1: And listener favorite, Iris. do not have sex with that horse. <laughs> we'll make you question your own political correctness while laughing at theirs. Episodes drop every Sunday and can be found by searching BB and BC Podcasts via Lipson, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and iHeartRadio. You can also listen episodes directly from the show's website at bodycounts.com. Hey Projection Booth listeners, I'm Chris Stashu, a writer. And I'm Sean Liang, an actor, and we are the hosts of The Culture Cast. Twice a week, Sean and I sit down and talk movies new and old, often centered around monthly genres. We also talked with people who were involved in the films themselves, like Jack Black, Doug Jones, and my favorite was Adam Green. (laughs) Our guests truly span the gamut of film. We also have weekly guest co-hosts, including the host of the podcast you're listening to now, Mike White. He uh, has joined us on some of our cinematic adventures and follies, including when we talked about the John Cusack Classic 2012.
6: So if you're looking to fill the time between Projection Booth Podcasts with more film musings, then check out the Culture Cast. That's Culture with a K
1: on any podcast apps, iTunes, or over at Cultureshop.com slash CultureCast. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The
6: Projection
1: Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, WHMPodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops us ragging on bad movies,
6: whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, party, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We hate movies every Tuesday.
3: My name is Dean Defino. I'm a professor of English at Iona College, where I also chair the English department, and I direct the film studies program.
5: And how long have you been doing that?
3: I have been at Iona. This is my 17th year. I've been directing the film program for 15, and I've been a chair for less than a year. How
5: did you come to write a cultography of Faster Pussycat Kill Kill?
3: Well, actually, uh, I was browsing through the Wallflower site. They have some really cool stuff on there, and I recognize the names of the editors of the series that just started up, as a matter of fact, who've done some really excellent work on cult cinema, and I pitched the idea directly to them.
5: And why Faster Pussycat out of all the movies in in the world?
3: Yeah, uh, (laughs) that's a good question. You know, there are, I mean, I watch a lot of movies, obviously, in my work, and there are certain ones. That just sort of seem to peek into the far corner of your brain and tease out something um, uh, blue velvet is one of those. I saw that when it first came out when I was seventeen, and I just I practically crawled out of the movie theater a few years after that. I saw Cassavetes' woman under the influence and it uh, you know you get this sort of sidelong glance into your id on certain occasions and Pussycat was one of those movies this sort of sudden recognition of uh, who we are and what makes us go, that kind of a thing. So when I was thinking, I actually teach a course in cult cinema, which I always begin with Meyer in one form or another. But when I was thinking about what I think of as the sort of seminal cult film, that was it. And there's only one on the list. Tell me about the first time that you saw Faster Pussycat and what was that like? I first heard of it when I was about 13 years old from uh, a kid a couple years older than me who seemed to know something about it. You know, sort of looking back at it subsequently, I think this is 1983 uh, was the year the Cramps' Smell of Female album came out, and there's a cover of the theme song, so he probably didn't know the movie at all, he probably heard the theme song and sort of did a little bit of his own kind of uh, recon work on it, but I filed it away in my brain, as one does as a teenager. Uh, I didn't actually get around to it until I was in college. In fact, I saw it in my parents' basement on an old computer monitor, uh, as though it were a dirty movie. Um, And um, it was an extraordinary experience. As I said, it's, it's sort of one of those moments where you feel like someone's kind of peeling the top off of your head and looking in. Uh, right from the start, I mean there's that wonderful opening with the um the monologue read by John Furlong, uh as the the optical track multiplies across the the black screen and he's talking about the smell of female and uh violence, the word in the act and uh this sort of the rapacious new breed that prowls both alone and in packs and so on. And uh in my twenty one year old brain <laughs> there it was, there it lived very immediately. So was it fairly easy to get at that point? No, not at all. Um, Let's see. I guess it was the late 1980s. The film had been out on home video. Um, Meyer actually distributed himself from his home. In fact, if you called, he was typically the person who answered and filled out the envelope and mailed it to you. Um, By by that time, I believe it was available in my local video store. It must have been. Uh, because I know I didn't buy it. It would have been about $90. Uh, And it was in the adult section, which of course was its own sort of set of sensory challenges and so on. Uh, And I sort of walked in and there it was, this small box in the middle of all these enormous ones. And, uh, you know, I grabbed hold of it and ran out the door with it, essentially. So yes, I, I suppose you could say it was difficult to get in the sense that culture used to be something that you had to step over a few lines to reach, depending on how obscure it was from the mainstream. Now everything seems to be largely available. I think that's an illusion, but we we sort of think that things are largely available to us. But at the time, it took a little bit of wherewithal and a desire to find it. If I hadn't desired to, I never would have.
5: So strange to me that I was in the adult section.
3: Yeah. Well, all, all of Meyer's films were at the time. He was sort of straddling the line between... R and uh, what was then hardcore pornography, and um, you know, he was certainly on the other side of hardcore. He was, he never was a hardcore filmmaker, but it was easy to imagine uh, reading the spiel on the covers of his um, movies and, and looking at the coming attractions and so on, that uh, that he was certainly trafficking in that, uh, even though he wasn't. You know, he was a much more sort of naive filmmaker, certainly sexually naive filmmaker. Now, where does Faster Pussycat Kill Kill fit into his filmography? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, it's a, it's a much broader body of work than we think of generally. Uh, Meyer started his career making what are called nudie cuties. In fact, he invented that form in 1959, a film called *The Immoral Mister T's*, uh, off of which he made a million bucks. So, obviously, he was very pleased with that. Uh, and this uh, this form, which was essentially a sort of good natured, dirty movie for the. Playboy crowd, I suppose, had a really big impact on exploitation cinema, which was a kind of illicit version of um, independent cinema operative in the really the 40s, 50s, and 60s primarily. And after a few years, there were lots and lots of imitators glutting the market, so he started looking elsewhere. Uh, at the time, he was friendly with Herschel Gordon Lewis, who I'm sure you know well, uh, who in 63 made a film with David. Um, uh, David F. Friedman, called uh, Scum of the Earth, uh, which is considered by many people the first Ruffy. This was 1963. And Meyer kind of saw an opportunity there, so he s- switched gears. <clears throat> he started making films that he referred to as rural gothics. And the first of them was Lorna in 1964, which turned out to be one of his most successful films. And then came Mud Honey, uh and Motorcycle and Pussycat and in very quick succession. So that's essentially all of the Ruffy films. They were each made kind of uh, right on the back of each other, less and less money. So he gave up the Ruffies and moved toward a kind of melodrama farce style that we would come to think of as defining most of his later work. But in terms of, you know, when we when we sort of look at the whole scope, and there are 30-something films here, Really, two of them jump out. One of them is Pussycat, and the other one is Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which is uh, his quote-unquote X-rated film made for Fox in 1970. Um, In many ways, they're very, very different films. Pussycat is very economical, not only in terms of storytelling, but in terms of characterization, Mm -hmm. style, et cetera. Dolls is extremely excessive. Uh, Pussycat is aggressively sexual. Uh, Dolls is sort of orgiastic. Pussycat, I would think of as being kind of proto-punk, whereas Dolls is kind of quasi-psychedelic. Uh, And, of course, Pussycat is the only Meyer film that he ever made that doesn't have any nudity in it, which really sets it apart. Uh, But in all of his films, there are certain qualities, I think, in common. They're all libido-driven, which is a really important factor here. The energy behind the story isn't necessarily narrative so much as it is sexual desire, frustration, compulsion. They're all outsized in terms of their proportions. They're They're not shooting for realism at any level. Um, they're surprisingly transgressive, I think, for a guy who was socially and sexually naive. And they have a, a visual style that combines what I think of as a remarkable intuition for film form and a kind of avant-garde sensibility. So it is an anomalous work in some ways. It's an oddball, as are all the Ruffies, but it's definitely a Meyer film.
5: I've heard Faster Pussycat being compared quite often, to uh, motorcycle as far as kind of being the flip side of that, being girls instead of guys, being cars instead
3: of motorcycles. Do you see if that holds any water? Yeah, actually, it's an interesting, it's not really an inversion, it's just an extension, one of the other. You know, and it's, I think, a great expression I give Meyer a lot of credit as an intuitive filmmaker, but intellectually, I don't think he was particularly sophisticated. Uh, So he made Motorcycle, which is his kind of cheap attempt at a biker movie where you have three men on motorcycles, they are actually mopeds, who ride into town, this marauding band. Uh, The leader of them is a Vietnam vet. He has all this sort of anger in him, and he's raping the townspeople and so on, and there's this kind of violent clash. And people liked the movie. Um, You know, it was in many ways a typical Meyer movie. There was a lot of simulated sex and nudity in it. But they liked the violent aspect of it. And, of course, this is the mid-1960s, so the kind of countercultural aspect of it, I think, had a certain appeal as well. He saw it, made some money. It did better than Mud Honey. And he said, oh, well, why don't we switch it up a little bit? Let's make a movie not with three men, but three women. And instead of motorcycles, let's make... You put them in cars, and it was really that simple. You know, I don't think there was any more to his thought process than that. How else can we spin out exactly the same formula, but vary it enough that people will see it as a different movie? That's simply the way Meyer's brain worked. And
5: of a movie where you have our three female leads all being go-go dancers, why is there no nudity in Faster Pussycat?
3: Yeah, that's a great question, and it's one that Meyer never even <laughs> attempted to answer, even though he was asked it several times. Uh, it had nothing to do with the casting. Uh, in fact, the um, uh, Tura Satana and uh, Haji were both strippers, which is how they were cast. Uh, in fact, Haji is probably, I think, the most frequently used actor in any Meyer film. Uh, they work together in a strip club together, which is where. Meyer did a lot of his casting, so they certainly didn't have an issue with nudity at all. Uh, Laurie Williams, who played Billy in the film, her background was more, quote-unquote, legitimate. She did uh, a bunch of Elvis films. She'd be one of the women dancing on the beach behind Elvis. So it it wasn't prudishness. Uh, I think he was simply attempting something different, and it didn't quite work out. But he really sort of scratched his head on the same question. I suspect... At some level, it, it didn't occur to him. I think he thought, well, you know, I've made a sexy movie, and he didn't think about the fact that nobody took their tops off. It's funny that Lori Williams was
5: one of the more skilled actresses, because sometimes her performance seems to fall the most flat. I mean, I love her, don't get me wrong, but just that sometimes her, her lines just feel a little clunky to me.
3: Yes, Yeah, in fact, the whole script is at some level clunky. It has wonderful lines, but the delivery of them... Uh, is often forced, and I think this is mostly true with Laurie Williams, who has a couple of great speeches, right, where she's sort of swiveling her hips and uh, you know, pop the top before you blow your own, that kind of a thing. There's that long exchange between her and the old man at the at the dinner table where she talks about how she's old enough for drinking and for having sex and for voting and, you know, or I'm voting, I forget what the other thing is, but for whatever reason, she says, look, you know, your son's clearly not interested, I can't can't do this other thing right now so give me the give me the bottle right and she sits there and she gets drunker and drunker and drunker and it's this wonderful sort of set speech where she really has an opportunity to kind of flex her acting muscles and it just falls incredibly flat it reads as though it's coming straight off of a cue card yeah you know?
5: And I have to say, talk about great lines. I mean, the first time I really knew that this movie was just going to hit me over the head with its greatness was uh, uh, Sue Bernard, uh, when she gets out of the car and says, Did somebody mention my figure?
3: (laughs) You could time that heap with an hourglass, yeah. (laughs) In fact, this actually has my favorite line of all time in it, which is when Varla strategically makes Rosie drive the Porsche, uh, at the end of the film, to run over the old man in his wheelchair, and she says, "Drive and don 't miss i mean there 's just not a better line in American cinema than that.
5: so when you were investigating this, what did you find out about it? like
3: did you find out more about jackie Moran, the uh the writer Yeah, I mean the story on uh Jackie Moran is you know pretty well known. he was a child actor who kind of fell on the skids he was a good friend of uh, Myers, and he, look, most of Myers' work is identified, even though he didn't script many of his films, with Roger Ebert, right? That sort of 70s style. But I think Morin had a much greater impact on Myers than Ebert did. If Ebert kind of gave legitimacy, made Hollywood interested, you know, made critics sort of think of him as a kind of, as a brethren rather than simply an object of uh, curiosity, Morin was the guy who kind of, He developed the patter, and that patter doesn't really ever go away. You see it even in the sort of freakiest of the 70s sex romps. What fascinates me about him is the way in which, and this is largely due to Meyer, the way in which a a kind of mythology was built around him, that you lock him in a hotel room, you give him a bottle of whiskey, you give him a bagged lunch, And you leave them alone for 12 hours. And then you come back at the end of the day, you grab the pages, and there's your script. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not, but it's a wonderful myth. To me, it's sort of right along there with the, um, you know... The writing of the Casablanca script right up to the last minute, you know, where the twin brothers and what's his name, uh, Koch, the third uh, screenwriter, sort of giving them, feeding, <laughs> feeding the actors lines practically in front of the camera. I don't know if that's true either, but it's a wonderful story. There are a lot of those things in sort of Meyerland, and And um, not only did Meyer cultivate a lot of that, and much of it is expressed or re-expressed in his enormous autobiography, which is not really worth reading, I have to say, having done so. But because it was such a kind of closed shop and because everyone was friends and because everyone was... They were all sort of compatriots. I think the closest comparison is uh, John Waters' Dreamlanders, right? That they all sort of work together and they perpetuate an idea of themselves together. So regardless of whether the stories are true or not, I think it says an awful lot about not only the loyalty this group of people had, for Russ Meyer but the love that they all had for each other
5: obviously this wasn't the first film that you've written about having been in the film program for so many years and being uh you know a teacher of film but when it came to doing your research and putting this book together for Wallflower how did you go about it
3: it's a strange thing about being an academic. There's a, there's a certain set of expectations, and there are certain hierarchies in place, and so on. And I remember uh, when I was first uh, when I first contracted to write the book, and I started to sort of discuss it with my colleagues. I had a uh, 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 friend in the English department who was also a professor of film, and we sort of started to break down what the work would look like. And it became relatively clear to me after a short span of time that people were not really interested in hearing about Russ Meyer, though few had seen or would admit to having seen any of his films. They clearly had a kind of bad taste or some notion of who this person was, and I say in the in the book that it was sort of like admitting a, um, a love of Nicholas Spark novels or Rush Limbaugh or the Marquis de Sade. It's just sort of something that you, you keep to yourself. Uh, so that was kind of an interesting lesson, that there are those lines. And of course, that was just more encouragement to me. Uh, one of the things that attracts me not only to this film but to cult cinema in general is its transgressive nature, so the idea that I was doing something that might be perceived of as academically transgressive made it only more appealing to me. In terms of what I learned, I would, I would answer that in two ways. I learned a lot about myself as a viewer, and I actually talk about this in the introduction to the book, which begins with a discussion of meeting David Lynch in Long Island several years ago. Uh, and recognizing that I was standing among my peers and being sort of uncomfortable with that notion. And it reminded me of the Robert Warshaw quote where he says, a man watches a movie and the critic must acknowledge he is that man, right? So in that sense, it was an, an interesting look into myself. In the same way that the film kind of forced me to peer into a dark corner of my psyche, so did the process of investigating the film in terms of what i learned about the film itself when when i talk about cult cinema with my students i often talk about the sort of absurdly circuitous route by which a film which is generally uh defined as being bad and it may by fans of the film it may be described as so bad it's good but in sort of uh hierarchical terms or qualitative terms, it simply is bad. The very fact that it is able to sort of break at this point and, you know, somehow or other find its way to an audience and then that audience is able to unify around it and through that unification, there's a sort of ritual sublimation and through that ritual sublimation there is a perpetuation of the mythology of the film or the cult of the film. To me, that's the sort of fascinating part of the story. How does this thing that Meyer really, he sort of disavowed himself of the film. He just saw it as a failure. It was the first and only film that he ever made that didn't make any money in its first release. So he just saw it as a thing to forget about. And yet somehow or other it percolated its way up through the sort of, I don't know, the pop cultural psyche In through the 70s, where a lot of his other work was being embraced, and somehow or other this was still at a kind of subliminal level, through into the early 80s, where uh, punk culture, to a certain extent, embraced the film, et cetera, et cetera. And then in the 90s, it was embraced by um, various critical schools, the feminists in particular, through B. Ruby Rich, not only feminists, but also queer studies through B. Ruby Rich, and somehow or other found its way, right? And here it is it still survives. Here we are still talking about it. That was the fascinating part of it to me, to learn how it did that. And of course, no film does it the same way as any other, but they all get there. And there's something sort of, uh, you know, I want to say miraculous, but that sounds absurd. There's something ridiculous about it, but also beautiful.
5: Well, teaching a course on cult cinema, I mean, one of the biggest things for me is really how How do you, and I do mean you, not just the general you, but how do you define cult cinema?
3: Well, yeah, there are a number of criteria, I think. The two that are most important to me, a cult film needs at some level to be transgressive. Uh, It can be iconoclastic. It can be revolutionary. It can be the voice of an angry person. It can be a gigantic mess. But in one way or another, it needs to sort of transgress normative values. Otherwise, there's no way we can sort of attach ourselves to it in a in a kind of um, socially divorced way, which is really what a cult is, right? A cult is not like a religion or like a formally recognized organization. There's something outlying about it. So if the text isn't transgressive, then it doesn't work that way. Now, sometimes... It's an unintentional transgressiveness. So there's a cult audience for Back to the Future, but there's also a mainstream audience for it. There's a cult audience for Titanic, but there's also an enormous mainstream audience for it. Uh, So part of it is simply an attitude that we take toward it, that we see it operating in a transgressive way, which leads to the second part. That's absolutely essential to me. I think a cult film has to produce a kind of ritual sublimation. I think it has to offer us an opportunity for a kind of release where it stands in for something else, something akin to catharsis, but I don't think identical with that because catharsis moves us in the direction of knowledge and release and so on. And I think cult is much more escapist. So it's, it's ritual as a opposed to a kind of purgative action. And of course in that ritual is that community connection. It can't be a cult film if there isn't a community around it. There has to be a cult.
5: Yeah, it's interesting. As you're talking about cult films, and I'm thinking about probably one of the most famous cult films, which is Rocky Horror Picture Show, and just the way that things are put back into kind of a balance at the end, that, that Frank is defeated at the end, and that the lives of Brad and Janet are basically ruined. You know, you don't know what necessarily happens to them unless you want to believe shock treatment. But when I think about faster, pussycat kill, kill, yes, it is a very subversive film, but at the same time, Farrell is killed. So many other people are killed and really the balance has swung back and evil has been defeated at the end of the film, which isn't necessarily subversive, but the way that the story is told really
3: does embrace that. I'm going to disagree, I think. Um, and Actually, I'm glad you bring up Rocky Horror, because it's a movie I really dislike. Therefore, it makes a wonderful example of cult, because in order to sort of think it through, I think you also need to be able to stand outside of it and say, well, others draw a lot from this, and I don't, so I must be missing something, or I must kind of uh, put a new frame around it. And I, I genuinely think of Pussycat as putting a new frame around exactly what you're talking about. So, in the book, for example, I discuss um, the sort of traditional role of the femme fatale, which, um, you know, Varla seems to play that role, that she is this, often with the femme fatale, the origins of the, the sort of what becomes the predatory nature aren't clearly defined. We don't exactly know where all of Varla's rage and nihilism and aggressiveness come from, but they come from somewhere, and they are dispensed with, I suppose, is one way of putting it at the end of the story, but where I think it really becomes subversive is how that's done, right? So in in the Meyer universe, and this is one of the things that I really sort of love about Meyer's film, he's not a um, feminist by any means, but he is someone who... Uh, is very willing to sort of laugh at the ideal of male authority, particularly as it's sacked up against female sexuality as authority. So you get to the end of the film, and what you'd expect... So let's say this were a film noir, you know, the police, the male lead character, whomever, would be responsible for, as in Maltese Falcon, sending the femme fatale to the gas chamber, as in out of the past, driving the car into a tree so they both die, that sort of a thing. It's the man's job to rein in that sort of chaotic female sexual force. In this story, it is the furious woman is... is overcome only by the desperate woman, and in this case, the weakest character of all in the story, uh, Linda, the teenage girl who's kidnapped, uh, and not in hand-to-hand combat, not on equal terms. She runs her over with a truck, while the man, who is supposed to be sort of the, not only the... Uh, morally upstanding son, the one who's not corrupted by the old man's vengeance and perversion, should be the one that sort of wipes out Varla in that moment. He's incapable of doing it. So what we end up here is with here. What we end up with here isn't exactly an inversion of the the kind of standard patriarchal femme fatale story but a, 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 a kind of mashing up of it, a, a real sort of mangling of it in a way that when you get to the end of the story, I mean, there's no way you're satisfied with that ending. Linda doesn't get to kill Varla. And then, of course, the camera pulls right away and up comes the, uh, the theme to the end titles and the movie is over in about three seconds once Varla is dead. So we don't get that sense that a sort of uh, moral wrong has been righted. We don't get a sense that justice has been done, or at least I don't. What you get is a kind of brutal force putting down another brutal force.
5: It's strange, too, speaking of Linda, just that you've got the the two groups of three, the three women, the, the three men at the, the farmhouse, and then Linda caught between all of it. And so much of that second half of the film feels like, you know, is she's the helpless woman who's, whose virtue is on the line. And so much of it is, will they, won't they basically have sex with her? And it's just a strange thing where she becomes the, the object of the second, second act of the film, or the second half of the film.
3: Yeah, it's interesting that uh, that whole question of will they, won't they is a two-parter. Will she have sex with Paul, the good son? Will these bisexual go go girls rape her in some way? And in the Meyer universe, bisexuality and homosexuality are so ill understood because Meyer couldn't get his head around them that we don't quite know what that would look like. But there's always that sort of menace of sexual violence against her. Which is why the first time we see her, not only is she talking about her own sexuality, right? That someone mentioned my figure, my hourglass figure, she's in a bikini in the middle (laughs) of the desert. She's always sexualized and and sexualized and brutalized almost always in concert with each other that there's some force holding her down,
5: yeah, you would think that Tommy would somehow have survived
3: and right. be crawling across the desert for her but that's typical meyer it, he not only sort of um i don't know brutally undercuts male authority. His men tend to be impotent fops, and the, the women are aggressive. There's a fantasy element to that, by the way, which I talk about in the book in relation to the, the satyr mythology, much more so than the Femme fatale. There's this kind of notion of that these women are sort of like wood nymphs, or they're like the Baki who are engaged in this orgiastic ritual and the men who are driven by libido but too shy to sort of step over the edge of the, the the line between the wilderness and the field, that sort of a thing, or are willing to step from the floor of the go-go club to the stage to where the women are sort of flailing in front of them, they're also drawing an enormous amount of libidinal pleasure from standing at the edge. Um, so by making them weak, you're also playing into a kind of sexual fantasy, a fantasy of domination, which is one that anyone that knows anything about Russ Meyer's biography knows that it's something that was very much uh, you know at the, at the heart of him or at the heart of his sexual identity in any case. So there's a kind of, I hesitate to say, a positive quality, but there is a way in which that is embraced as a perfectly reasonable sexual choice, to, to not attempt to dominate, but to enjoy being dominated, which in a, a independent film, an exploitation film in the mid-1960s, is a pretty revolutionary idea. You said that you always
5: expose your students to a Meyer film when you start off. What's the other film or films that you would show them?
3: Well, I tend to stick within the mid-60s, so I've shown Lorna, which is a tricky one because it's a you know there 's a kind of rape fantasy at the center of it um, we 've looked at mud honey as well, which has kind of roots in American literature and And this one, so it's usually one of those three films. I always sort of bandy about the idea of doing uh Valley of the Dolls, but I haven't yet done it because I think it would require an enormous amount of scaffolding, <laughs> and I don't know that I have the energy <laughs> to build that scaffold
5: yeah i speaking of Mud honey, I was very glad to see uh, Michael Finn show up in uh Faster Pussycat. Caddy it was
3: a treat, yeah. It should be in every film ever made, I think. He <laughs> gets these wonderful moments, too. There there must have been an extraordinary amount of friendship between the two of them, because uh, he gets great lines. They're, they they appear to be sort of throwaways, but when you sort of look reflexively back at them, they, they become much more significant.
5: He almost reminds me of like a more unhinged John Astin. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I, <laughs> I can definitely see that. <laughs> Yeah, I really like what you were doing with the whole idea of the Seder and the Seder plays and all that. That was fascinating to learn that history, and just especially because it's a form of theater and of storytelling that you don't necessarily see or realize that, realize that you're seeing uh, in, in today's culture. So it was very nice how you drew those parallels between those and then Faster Pussycat.
3: Well, thank you. You know, it's, it's an odd thing that... Um And I think, by the way, that those ideas, those sort of Cothonian ancient, particularly ancient Greek ideas of uh, of sexuality, which were so much at the center of 60s counterculture, were somehow or other (laughs) brushed under the rug or, uh, I don't know, commodified in some way in arena rock or something or other in the 1970s, that they kind of disappear and we move back to something much more kind of... um, for lack of a better word, Protestant normative. Um, But there's no question that that, that the Dionysian ideal in particular is so much a part of the uh, free love movement, which Meyer had no interest in, by the way. He was a very straight-laced character. I mean, he was, you know very sexually active, but very sexually active in a way that one might be in a, I don't know, a hundred years previous. He had no interest in any kind of sexual experimentation or, um, you know, multiple partners or certainly had no interest whatsoever in uh, alternative sexual identities, at least as expressed in himself. Yet somehow or other, he seemed to have a really kind of native understanding of how malleable and how complex the idea of human sexuality is, that there are passive and aggressive forces, that there are feminine and masculine at work at the same time, and then there are other things that aren't defined by any of those terms. And he seemed to be perfectly comfortable, even if he didn't understand them, even if he couldn't write them, even if he couldn't necessarily shoot them in a thoughtful way of allowing them to sort of exist in his work. Um, It's one of the reasons why, you know, I don't know that we talk about Meyer enough these days, particularly given the the contemporary interest in trans identity and and the the notion that sexual identity is something in a state of flux or can be perceived as something in a state of flux. When I think he's a, you know, he's a director that really sort of was plugged into that in a lot of ways, regardless of how, Uh, naive he might have been in his own perception of it. I also wanted to commend you
5: on uh, name-checking Dionysus in 69. Other than (laughs) reading a biography of uh, Brian De Palma, I'm not going to see that uh, name mentioned very often.
3: My roots are in, uh, not necessarily avant-garde theater, but avant-garde movies. So, that sort of text is something that would always be in the background when I'm thinking about uh, what's going on in the 60s. So I've never seen a performance of it, obviously. It hasn't been performed in God knows how many years. There are some records of it, but I am fascinated by it, you know, the the, the very idea Uh, And actually, this is a really interesting point of comparison, I think, because in the 1970s, maybe the closest equivalent we had to Dionysus in 69 is something like Jesus Christ Superstar. And these two things couldn't be any more different, though both of them are supposed to be an expression of how the counterculture is embracing an ancient idea in a more contemporary way.
5: Can you tell me a little bit more about the book that you wrote previous to this, The HBO Fact?
3: Actually, the HBO effect came out before Pussycat, but I wrote Pussycat before that. Uh, as with many independent um, publishers in the, you know, in the post-recession age, Wallflower was sort of struggling with their catalog at the time, and um, they made an agreement with Columbia University Press while I was in the middle of writing the manuscript. So it took longer for it to come out. Uh, the HBO book was sort of written in the interim while I waited for the Meyer book to come out. The, the central premise of it is right in the title, which is that here is a network and here is a sort of cultural phenomenon that radically altered the way that we think about television. Um, and I focus on a number of different areas, the ways in which this sort of the, the rise of cable in the 60s and early 70s gave birth to the network, the ways in which it established itself as a premium service, which harkened back to a model of television that had been abandoned in the 1940s for the commercial one, where things were being supported by sponsors. And of course, you know, and then I will walk through the sort of history of certain genres. I'm particularly interested in comedy. And then, of course, you know, that golden age of HBO from around 1998 to 2008, where they were producing arguably the best stuff on American television and the impact that that's had on uh, contemporary television to follow.
5: Yeah, I don't want to make this all about me, but it's funny because one of the things that I always do on the show is when people come on to talk about a movie, and kind of like what I did with you, I wanted to know the first time that you saw Faster Pussycat, and I will ask our guests and co-hosts when was the first time that they saw a film, and so much of the time things go back to cable and go back to those earlier days of HBO before they were doing original programming. And when they would just run things kind of ad nauseum. And that was an interesting effect to me to see how a movie could either gain acceptance by being played over and over again, or just, you know, kind of become part and parcel of someone's life because it just always seemed to be there. And, that, to me, was the bigger effect of HBO, at least in those early days.
3: Yeah, you know, that's uh, there's this sort of remarkable convergence. It's really in the sort of early 80s where we begin to see HBO trotting out the Hollywood catalog, right? Hollywood is struggling at the end of the seventies because essentially new Hollywood is bankrupt. (laughs) So they're sort of having to sell off a percentage of their product and HBO who's been successful as a result of their satellite launch has some money to spend. So they're making these sweetheart deals for Hollywood films. It just so happens in the early eighties, which is a period I remember well, um, that cult cinema studies is coming up at the same time. So, people are able, as a result of the uh, sort of the home video boom at the beginning of the 80s, and by the end of the 80s, 80% of American households have a VH, VHS player in the house, that it's possible to not only watch, but rewatch and rewatch and rewatch and study with great interest, study as a scholar would, works that would not otherwise be elevated and when you think about HBO in the 80s in particular but i think this still remains largely the case much of what you're seeing on the network isn't particularly great movie making but you're able to see it you know i don't i can't tell you in college how many times i saw black rain which I did, a movie that I wish I could get out of my head, but because of the dozens of times I've seen it, I go back to it all the time in terms of a character reference or a stylistic gesture, or when I'm talking about the saturation of color or the use of grays and blues and blacks, there it is. I don't mention it because I suspect my students haven't seen it, um, but it's just that idea of repetition, right? And it's it's one that Obviously, HBO's business model was built on. If you can't watch it at 2 p.m., maybe you'll watch it at 2 a.m. If you can't, uh, you know, if if we only have 100 movies to show and we have 300 hours of time to fill, each of those is going to appear three times within that cycle.
5: It's funny that you bring up Black Rain because I saw a headline today where someone was saying, you know, oh, Black Rain, it was such a great film. And I'm just like, really? really? <laughs> now it's time to reevaluate Black Rain as a great film? Whoever this was didn't see it enough.
3: They needed to see it another 10 times to realize that. Very much like that jingle, you can't get out of your head, right? You may be impressed with the fact that it's able to worm its way into your brain, but that that's not reason enough to make the claim that it's great.
5: What are you working on these days?
3: For the last two years, I've been working on uh, a project It's currently amorphous on the subject of British comedy, in particular stand-up comedy and television Uh, I have a fascination with this subject that arose from a number of sort of strange circumstances. But um, the primary one being the problem of access. In America, we export an enormous amount of culture. We do not import much, right? Which is why we don't really see foreign films in the multiplex anymore unless there's something truly extraordinary and epic-making about them or whatever, and they get enough of a... um, uh, you know that they that the theater companies think that they're going to be able to cover their expenses. British comedy we don't get much of. We either get the sort of PBS, BBC America version, which is a very very narrow uh, sort of shard, uh, or we go looking for it ourselves. So I started looking for it, and the things that I found were not only impressive, but there's a there's a kind of coherence about it that fascinates me. So my interest in British comedy is actually two part. One is I just love the stuff and I want to talk about it and I want to get people to watch it and listen to it, and the other is that you know it's that sort of uh, old Churchill quote which he stole from someone else. I don't know who's the first to say it, but we're two countries separated by a common language, uh, and I'm I'm interested in that idea. Why is it that we don't? You know, is it just that we can't get it, or is it that we're disinclined? Is is someone wise? In believing that there wouldn't be a large enough audience if such and such a person were to uh, be cast in an American sitcom, for example. There's some sort of breakout now. For example, I don't know if you're familiar with James Corden, who hosts The Late Late Show now. Uh, I took over for Craig Ferguson. Uh, James Corden is a major television star in the UK. He had one of the most successful uh, dramedies of all time, a show called Gavin and Stacey, which... Uh, did By the time the run of the series was over, 14 million viewers, which is unheard of in Great Britain. A, a, a successful series runs at about two or three million. No one knows who James Gordon is. He couldn't walk down the street in the UK with, without someone recognizing him. And that's sort of interesting to me. So here he is hosting an American television show, obviously not the premier late night show, but he's only a tier or two off. And of course we have John Oliver. Um, so there are folks that make a, a kind of inroads, but I'm always surprised when I show up at a show in some tiny little hole in Brooklyn or in, you know, uh, lower Manhattan, a 200 seater that a person has come over an ocean to do a two-week stand-at, and you show up, and there's no one but Brits there. There are no Americans whatsoever. So I'm sort of chasing the tail of that particular dragon right now. What's your favorite era
5: of British stand-up comedy? Are you talking just the current stuff or going back into the 50s, 60s, 70s?
3: I don't think I have a favorite. I'm concentrating primarily on contemporary because it's easier to talk about contemporary culture since the reader will have shared in that culture, or a broader base of the readership will have shared in that culture. I have a passionate love for Spike Mulligan and the goons. I think they're just the greatest thing ever. Um, I love the pythons, though I love Faulty Towers more than the pythons. 70s uh, British television, which is often sort of derided as being kind of... Um, well, let's just say that the the, the entire uh, sort of 80s, anti-Thatcher, uh, punk, Alexei Sale, the young ones, that sort of a thing was a direct attack on uh, what they saw as the deficiencies of the 70s. I see them as being less and less deficient when I look at the work of uh, Ronnie Barker and uh, Morkum and Wise and so on and so forth. So I love it all, but I'm particularly sort of focusing right now on contemporary stand-up comedians. In fact, I'm going to name a few that I think you need to check out. Uh, one of them is Stuart Lee, who currently has a show on, I think it's on BBC2, called Stuart Lee's Comedy Vehicle. And you can get a bunch of stuff on YouTube. He has a couple of albums that are available as well. Daniel Kitson, who is the maybe the primary cult celebrity in British comedy right now who refuses to do interviews who refuses to advertise who wears coke bottle glasses and has a lisp and two other speech impediments and somehow or other manages to be this remarkably successful comedian Josie Long uh, Izzy Sooty and and then there are folks that you might know like Dylan Morin who uh, co-created Black Books which is a series that ran on PBS for years is a wonderful stand-up comedian um, there's an enormous body of work out there, and yet Americans know little or nothing about it. I was hoping you had mentioned Bill Bailey. He's one of oh, I love Bill Bailey. Bill Bailey is one of fairly talented. Uh, and one other I would point to, um, uh, one other, as a pair, is uh, David Mitchell and Robert Webb, who are actually television folk who you may know from Peep Show, and if you don't, you definitely need to see Peep Show. I don't think I've seen Peep Show. I remember there, didn't they have that that Michelin and Webb look? Yes, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm, which was their skit show, Peep Show is a sitcom, which is currently streaming on uh, Netflix and is magnificent. Another one, if you're looking, is Limmy's show, but you have to watch it with um, subtitles because he has an extremely heavy Scottish accent. Limmy is uh, magnificent.
5: Yeah, I've, I tend to watch everything with subtitles on just in case for some reason. It, it's one of my things, and and it's always interesting to see when they have changed lines or changed music cues, and the the captions don't have the updates to it. Right. <laughs> I I don't know. It's just one of those geeky things that I like to do.
3: No, I'm I'm right there with you. We sort of started because we had small children and had to turn the sound down. But now I, I'm obsessed with subtitling everything that I watch because I want to. Part of it is I'm losing my hearing, my age, but another part of it, I want to see, first of all, the nuances I'm missing, and second of all, the difference. There's, there are semiotic differences in the way the text is being rendered visually and verbally that I think are sometimes fascinating. Yes, yes. Oh, good. I'm glad I'm not the only nerd when it comes to captioning. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely. (laughs) To me, that's much more interesting than a DVD commentary. I'm much more interested in the site titles. Well, thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been a
5: real pleasure talking with you.
3: Oh, it's been a pleasure for me as well. I hope there's some useful material here.
5: Well, I want to know a little bit more about you, if I can. I I want to kind of know your your background and when you got into writing.
1: I hate to say I fell into it, Mike, but i have written all my life just as a matter of course. And then um, I started hanging out with this guy Landis. He had a magazine called Sleazoid Express. We hung out on 42nd Street. That became its own world. When that got just too heavy for me to hang out in, I had to call it a day. I started doing profiles for the Village Voice, and I just started writing about uh, people who had obsessed me one way or another. Country singer by the name of Gary Stewart, uh, writer by the name of Hubert Selby, uh, jazz singer by the name of Little Jimmy Scott. And I do these insanely long profiles, about one every year, year and a half. At the same time, I was working full time in the film business. I look back, I don't know how the hell I did it. But so uh, that sort of begat my writing career, and then I just started doing these biographies, and uh, I've only written about people I have a complete and utter obsession with, because it just isn't worth it. (laughs) It (laughs) It's a rather intensive uh, uh, piece of labor, as I'm sure you're aware, so I've got to really be into it to want to do an entire book. And uh, Meyer was somebody, I had worked for a guy by the name of Radley Metzger, uh, when I was in the film business. And, you know, our, uh, Ra- Russ Meyer was the other RM on the other coast, and he was always a subject of fascination to me. He'd, he'd come up in terms of work and stuff. I'd talk to him on the phone sometimes. And I just thought, one day I'm going to write about this guy, and that uh, led to the book.
5: What were you doing with Radley Metzger? I mean, he's, he's another fascinating figure for me and such a great director. But
1: yeah, I was sort of his uh, uh, editorial assistant. I worked for him for a few years. That was the whole trip. Radley was something else. Radley was sort of the polar opposite of Russ Meyer. That's about all I can really say about that. He was as far from Russ Meyer as you could get. Except in terms of intensity, he had he had an intensity. And the guy loved movies. He knew more about movies. It was a real education working for Radley.
5: What was your first Russ Meyer film that you saw?
1: Uh, funnily enough, I think it was Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens, a latecomer. And I saw it at the Jersey City State Theater, I believe it was. Uh, it was on a double bill. I can't remember what was on the other end of that double bill. I want to say Preacher Man, which is a low-budget uh, rural exploitation film. That's what it was, because both blew me away. Albert T. Viola, this guy, directed Preacher Man. Great little film not many people know about, although I'm sure there's 5,000 of them out now on the Internet that know about it. Uh, but but uh, I saw it beneath, and it just... Uh, as the hippies were wont to say, blew my mind. And uh, from there on, I just, uh, you know, got obsessed and had to know every damn thing about them.
5: How did the project come up? Is this something that you had to pitch to an editor? Or is this just something that you had to do for passion?
1: With with books, you always have to, you always have to find somebody to foot the bill. You write a proposal, you know, you send it out to some companies, hopefully a few people take a bite. So you get the price up Uh, and that's how it happened. It's just, uh, you know, there's there's only so many people in my pocket that I want to write about. In fact, at the moment, I'm finishing – I just finished another book. I, I really haven't – aside from a couple of books I'm doing for this guy, uh, uh, Nicholas Refn, uh that our uh, labors love, I really – I don't know. I, there's nobody left on my list that's alive, certainly – So I don't know what I'm going to do. So Meyer was one of them, and I just, uh, uh, you know, it started that way. And unfortunately at that time, he was already uh, well into the illness that killed him. There was no way I was going to talk talk to him. In a way, though, that became a blessing, I think, because, uh, you know, the book's fairly honest. And I got, you know, I, I got to talk to nearly all the dames and uh, had a great time with all of them, in particular, Tura and, and Erica Gavin, man, what pieces of work they were, and Kitten. Uh, those those three uh, really helped me. And, and then, uh, you know, I just uh, dove in and burrowed in and did all the research I could and talked to as many people as I could, and there you have it.
5: I know for a lot of years it was tough to find the Russ Meyer films. Was that, uh, had they kind of come to the surface by that point?
1: Well, you could always get them from Russ, you know, if you wanted to pay exorbitant amounts for a VHS tape. I mean, he was just just charging a lot of dough, you know. Uh, But, you know, uh, uh, I certainly got my hands on everything I could see. And, uh, you know, I'm just one of these people that if I'm interested, I'll find a way. That's just the way it is. I mean, you know uh whatever whatever my whatever my uh deficiencies i'm tenacious so you know i talked to a lot of people people said they'd never talk this one's not going to talk to you you're not going to get that one blah 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 but uh, you know i managed to get nearly everybody to talk that i wanted to talk so uh you know if i'm interested i i commit myself that's all i can tell you
5: yeah you you do sound like you you know how to get around in a good way
1: well we hope so i mean like i did this book on andy milligan and i mean you know uh and in that book i tell the whole story of this off 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 broadway theater the cafe chino and everybody said you know people made it very difficult to begin with because they didn't want andy's name associated with the chino and all this and there's more about the chino the 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 underbelly, I guess you'd say, of the Chino in that book than there is in all the more uh, academic studies. Again, whatever my deficiencies, I wouldn't, want, I wouldn't want me researching my life, put it that way. <laughs>
5: when it comes to uh, your, your book on Meyer, are you looking primarily at the films? Are you looking more at his life or are you looking at that intersection of the two?
1: I would say the intersection, Mike. It's always with probably an emphasis uh, on the life. I'm no uh, film expert. I, I'm drawn to people who have, I found in retrospect, I only kind of figured this out in retrospect, but people who have sort of an all-consuming passion for something that they take almost to ridiculous extremes, and it almost always seems like it's also their undoing in a way. And in my line of work, I can relate to all that, definitely. And so Meyer was like, I mean, you know, you, this guy was driven by a fetish. I mean, that is why the films exist. They're a monument to his personal fetish. I mean, it's just, even thinking about it now it makes me laugh. I mean, the, Annie made a pile of loot. Uh, you know, he got to cavort with all these dames. I mean, uh, you know, it's almost like he robbed the bank or something. I mean, it's like he made a clean getaway. In the end, he didn't. The end of his life, of course, was very sad. But in terms of uh, uh, materializing monument, creating a, 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 a cinematic <laughs> monument to his obsession, you know, the guy, uh, the guy, uh, gangbusters, he won, you know. I mean, he did it. He did what he set out to do. I got, you know, I admire that kind of mockery.
5: Now, when it comes to to the uh, the fetish, to to the big boobs, yeah, was that always there? Was that even in the, the the early films of his, or did that kind of increase as his fame increased?
1: Well, you know, he was a cameraman for the Signal Corps, and his army buddies were just as important as his breast obsession. I mean, the two go hand in hand, and throughout his life. He filmed those guys. He he was sort of like you know, <laughs> you know. Meyer was a funny guy. He valued all these guys to the to the max. I wouldn't say he was necessarily fun though. He would sort of he was like a drill sergeant. He'd make them all get together. He'd film the reunions. And the last thing, the last monumental project he was working on was going to be a blend of all of his films with all this footage of his buddies included. They pop up in his films and everything. So at any rate, so he's a war photographer, right? And then he uh, he gets laid in the ward according to his story. Uh, uh, so I think there's an intersection there that had extra oomph for him. He gets out and then he starts making money as a still photographer. Of course, what does he uh, shoot stills for? Uh, but men's magazines and, uh, you know, specializing in top-heavy women. And and something I just think it fired on all eight cylinders in his brain and he realized, I'm on to something here. This is bringing in a lot of loot and it's satisfying a deep, deep, deep urge within myself. How many of us are that lucky to uh to do that. I I don't know. There's not many. And he, and he did it to the to as I say, an absurd extreme, you know. And and especially if you look at his later films like Pandora Peaks, I mean, it's just a grim artifact where there's nothing left but the vestige of the the fetish. All the joy is gone. Uh it's just kind of like a, a, a whisper of what Meyer was, but but it's still that engine. You know he couldn't kill it to the very end. You know the breasts got so big they were you know grotesque, and, and again the it, joyless. So uh, I just you can't separate the films from the fetish, in my opinion. You just, you can't do it. You can't do it.
5: You kind of touch on this as far as, you know, that's what he says. It it seems like he was somebody who really kind of liked to gild the truth, and it must have been difficult for you to kind of be that biographer, to to sort out what's the bullshit and what's the real stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I only got so far because, in truth, he's a very mysterious character. He was not, um, I would not say he was uh, a a self-reflective person. I mean, he wrote a thousand-plus page autobiography, uh, there's very little insight. Some great photographs, some funny comments, but uh, there's very little insight you'll find into Russ Meyer there. It just wasn't his uh, calling in life. And yeah, if if he were, if he had been, uh, uh, if he had, if he had had all of his senses about him, he probably would have killed me before I finished this book. Believe you me, he would not have been happy with it, uh, and he would have done everything to stand in its way. I'm, I have no doubt about that. But, you know, uh, you know, most biographies, if they're true at all, uh, that's usually the end result, I find, personally.
5: Why do you think he would have been angry? What were some of those things that he might not have liked?
1: Oh, you know, the the fact that I believe uh, all of his work is tinged with a certain mental illness, which manifests it's, itself in... His relationships with people—I mean, there was something kind of off about Meyer, unfortunately. I mean, even in terms of editing his films, you know, he 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 had this whole deal where no one could blink in his films, and he wanted—he <laughs> told the editor, "You know, there's blinking. You got to cut out the blinking." I mean, he had all sorts of crackpot theories like that. Now, to his to his favor, he made it work, and you know, I think he's one of the great filmmakers of all time. Don't get me wrong. But again, I mean, if you delve into it, his mother was just a, a completely unhinged character who gave him enemas and, you know, ruled his life. A very sour, dour character. His sister was mentally ill. There's a facade about Meyer. And when you get behind it, it's almost like a cardboard picture, you know. with a, You know, in a record store, you'll see like a poster of Tom Jones or something, and it's on a folding cardboard stand. Sometimes I felt that way with Meyer. I mean, his his stick was so good and so charming. But once you kind of looked around the edge, it was just flat cardboard, you know, held up by uh, another piece of cardboard. And, and I'm not putting them down or anything. This is just my personal observation. I didn't even know the guy, uh, really. Uh, but but he was unhinged in a lot of ways and i i don't think before my book that was really explored he was more seen as this kind of good old you know have a beer with russ and isn't he a great guy and he screwed all these dames well the truth was you know i don't think he knew a lot about sex really and uh what he knew was limited to his fetish <laughs> So, you know, it just makes for a very bizarre worldview. Now, we as recipients of his vision are, you know, eh, what can you say? For what it is, it's a thousand percent. But, you know, it, 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 he was never going to, like, you know, undertake a remake of The Color Purple, for for example. I mean, you know, uh, or uh, what's another good example? Uh, On Golden Pond, you're never going to get that out of Russ. He was concerned only, with, in a way, with the surface of things. And and it was magical, and it pulled him in, and and he brought it to life beautifully. Uh, But I think in a lot of ways his life was very sad. I mean, his home was just a monument to himself. It wasn't a comfortable place. You know, he had these kind of vicious dogs that roamed around that he threw bloody stakes at. And, and you know, there was an editing machine, like, you know, in the... I mean, it just didn't seem like it was a life of comfort or uh, a, a relaxed state of being. It was a guy who was driven, and again, driven by a fetish. I understand it. I empathize. I can relate to certain degrees, uh but, you know, that's sort of, it, it's sort of like a a, a a beautiful torture in a way. I don't know. I, I'm rambling here, but maybe you get the idea.
5: This is kind of a rogue question, but I <laughs> actually am very curious about it. What was some of the most surprising stuff you found when you were doing this research?
1: Well, just as I said that he was, even though he was a very funny guy, he was also sort of humorless and very serious and dour And he drove his crews to exhaustion. I mean, the stories of, say, making Common Law Cabin, they're hysterical. I mean, you know, he picked these locations that were beyond hell. He'd stick these actors in them. uh, And then he'd really torture them. I mean, you know, especially on the set of Vixen, he really became unhinged. And, you know, there were betrayals by one of the guys on the crew because, they were talking to Erica Gavin. I mean, it was it, it, his films were really an extension of, of behavior in the war. Okay, and, and it was Meyer's war. It was like Meyer against the world. Either you were on Meyer's side or you weren't. And uh, to me, that was really surprising because you get you watch his films. They're very giddy, uh, funny, full life, and yet he's this very kind of sour. Oh, I would say dark character in a lot of ways so that really uh that did surprise me at first but then once i got the gist of it 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 made perfect sense it just all fit together like it always does i don't know i mean for me it it all fit together once i got the mo
5: when you're doing a project like this do you ever are you ever afraid that you're going to kind of ruin the fun of the movies by learning too much about the behind the scenes stuff
1: I just wrote a biography about the singer Al Green, and that was a very difficult project because because uh, I got a sense of things that, you know, did undermine my love of the music. So, uh, yeah, that, you know, yeah, yeah, you do. But I always keep in mind, I always try to kind of divorce, well, I just kind of try to remember why I got into the project in the first place, which was my complete and utter admiration for the films, which hasn't diminished to this day. In fact, I would say knowing everything I know about Meyer only enhances the films because, uh, you know, there's so much personal history. And I only scratched the surface. There's a lot about Meyer, I think, that will never, ever be known because he was really kind of a cagey guy who didn't reveal a lot except for the, image he wanted to present to the world. I always, always try to remember what it was that prompted me in the first place and not forget about that and not diminish any of that uh, when I put the book together.
5: What are your favorite Russ Meyer films?
1: Oh, well, Faster Pussycat is just... I You know, I, I don't know if things can get better than that. I, I just think Faster Pussycat is as good as it ever gets. I mean... I get chills just – I take that movie very personally. And I got very tight with Tura. Uh, we both joked had we met in another time, you know, we probably would have ended up on some uh, faraway island uh, with a couple of Lugers blowing coconuts off a tree. Uh, but, but that certainly didn't happen. But I, I got very, very fond of Tura. She was just an amazing individual. It's a cr- It was a crime that Tura didn't get to do more uh, – I, I just think she was too big for for the world of film. She she was just so ahead of her time. Uh, it's really a, a, a criminal thing that she didn't get to do more because she was she was just an amazing dame. So there's that one I really love. I love Mondo Topless even though it's batshit crazy. I mean. You know, it's really just like this loop with, you know, with this, <laughs> you know, this this, this over the top panting narration and and part travelogue. And again, you know, Meyer got trained in industrial films, so that all enters into it. All these weird shots of, uh, you know, uh, uh, car fenders and radios. Uh, it's just I think Mondo Topless is fantastic. I, 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 a fantastic film. Uh And uh, and and beneath, I love because it's his obsession with Kitten and and he real I mean, down to like, you know, the wheels on the bed frame, uh, uh, you know, making marks in the carpet. I mean, he his attention to detail is just fiendish. So I can go on and on. Common Law Cabin cracks me up. I really do have to say though, I prefer the screenwriting uh, of Moran, the guy who who entered, who was there before Roger Ebert. I know everybody in the world loves uh, uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, and I admire it for what it is. But that to me. It doesn't ring my bells like the earlier films. I have to admit it.
5: What is it that you think still is appealing or what appeals to you still after all these years about Faster Pussycat?
1: You know, it's like uh, one of them lurid 60s paperbacks, uh, like a uh, painting by Eric Stanton, uh, you know, wrought large on the big screen. It, it's It's an attitude about life. It's an attitude about life rarely captured in a movie. It's very pulpy. Uh, it's very aggressive. Yet there's a real beauty to uh, the way the people interact. It's very, very funny, beautifully shot. And again, you know, you have, uh, you have Tura, just magnificent. It, it, it's just a moment in time perfectly, perfectly crystallized. I mean, uh, you know, the dialogue is just, you know, uh, to die for. I just think it's it's Meyer at its best, at his best, really do.
5: The thing that got me the first time I ever saw a Russ Meyer film was the use of montage and just his cutting style is so great. But one of the things, though, they had uh, clips of that, the project that you were talking about, the, the kind of the end-of-his-life project where he's putting together all of that stuff into this crazy movie, Right and the... Editing and that just was like, oh my god, what, what's he doing? I mean, I'm sure it probably would have made sense at the end, or maybe it wouldn't. How much of that did you end up seeing?
1: Oh, just the pieces that everybody else is seeing. You know, the little bit that was in the UK uh, documentary by Jonathan, what's his name? I I forget his name, but there was there was a bit there. I I, I didn't. Uh, you know, no one no one got to see much of it. You know. Uh, And and what you talk about may be true because uh, like with his autobiography, you know, he kept working on the autobiography to the point where uh, Dave Frazier, who helped him with the book, will tell you he became obsessed with the relationship in the uh, in the fonts uh, of letters being too close in the space between the letters. I mean, he got so into it, it became madness And it might be with with that uh, huge uh, compilation that he might have gone overboard. But, man, I would have loved to have seen it because, uh, you know, he shot so much footage for it. And uh, it would be a peek, you know, into his mind. Uh, But it became, you know, like the Winchester Mystery House. It just never, never got done. And it's amazing, really, that his autobiography got done because he he tortured everybody who was working on it and kept changing it and kept changing it. And the weird thing is, as I say, there's not much substance to the book. It's all like this surface thing. So uh, what can you say? It's Meyer. You know, it's Russ Meyer.
5: Yeah, there's not much to it, but the fonts are gorgeous.
1: You got it. You got it. And a lot of people, you know <laughs> uh yeah, suffered suffered for those fonts.
5: What was the reaction like when your book finally came out?
1: Well, uh, you know, the, the the dames uh all liked it. Uh I don't think the estate was too happy with it, which is fine with me. Uh I don't you know, I, I, I don't think it's any secret. I don't think they've done the best job of uh of maintaining uh, Meyer's work, uh, but you know that's all in the book. I really, I, I, I don't want to get a million uh, hate mails for for it's all in the book. If anybody's curious, but uh, for the most part, I can't remember anybody getting upset with me. Even as old uh, army buddies, I mean, you know, they usually laughed when they talk about it, which meant I think you know they knew how crazy Russ was, and the book is the book is certainly crazy. So,
5: well, it is one of the most. I don't know if the word harrowing is the right word, but it, it just it keeps me on the edge of my seat when I read it. And it, it just, it's so entertaining and so insightful on this stuff. So it, I hope that peop, other people reacted to it with the same kind of uh, vigor that I did.
1: Oh, yeah, 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 no, no. I mean, you know, I'm happy. People really like it. At the time, I was on this antidepressant Wellbutrin, and I was taking far too much of it, and it makes you really speedy. And I see that in the, it's sort of like, <laughs> it's sort of like Jimmy's version of the cut out the blinks. There's a certain, uh, uh frenetic, uh, thing about the text. Uh, and I, you know, some, some critics said I was trying to imitate Meyer, I would never, ever, ever in my wildest dreams try to imitate Russ Meyer. I mean, whatever was on the page, believe me, it came out of my personal spleen. So, you know, blame me. Uh, but it's funny. I look back on that book, and, and, and uh, uh, you know, I've written another book about another exploitation director, Andy Milligan, and it's sort of like uh, the, the 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 yin to, to Myers Yang. Uh, they're like the extreme poles of of exploitation filmmaking. You know, Andy was gay, uh, made films for a dollar ninety eight, never got any success. Uh, his films, you know, they're just every frame has has. Filth and bugs in, 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 in lurking at the edges of, 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 of the, the, the frame line, and then you have rust, which is this glossy, very uh, high uh, high style, uh, the, the, the Hollywood end. I would say of exploitation. So I always find it amusing that I managed to to pick off both of those guys in books because it covers two of my favorite exception uh, 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 obsessions at different ends of the extreme.
5: When well, you mentioned that you're working on a book about Nicholas winding refren that's gotta be new for you because he's still alive.
1: Oh no, 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 no. He, uh, um, uh, my buddy, uh, NWR is, uh, is actually, uh, we're all pals. I, uh, I, I have, I, I love this guy. He, he's just a soulful cat. And I I admire the hell out of him. I loved his last movie, Neon Demon. I thought it was just uh, the bee's knees. And he is putting out a deluxe edition of the ghastly one, and we're working on, uh, I'm doing a biography uh, on this family, the Ormonds, who made these uh, exploitation p- films in Nashville. They started out doing all sorts of stuff, uh, uh, vaudeville pictures, uh, uh Hillbilly exploitation pictures, and then after a life-changing uh, uh, near plane crash, they started to make religious pictures for the Baptist crowd. Exploitation pictures uh, based in the Bible, you would say. And I've been working on this thing for uh, since I began my writing career, so it's really a dream uh, project of mine. And uh, and and Nicholas is uh, is uh, ace enough to uh, to be letting me do it because no one in the world would care. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be first class all the way, and I, I've I've held on to all sorts of memorabilia, pictures. Uh, it, it'll be first class, so uh, yeah, I'm very much looking forward. I'm just getting into that right now, and I'm I'm having the time of my life. Thank you, Nicholas.
5: Okay, so I I totally misunderstood. So you were doing the ghastly one with him, and then also working on this the book about the Orman family.
1: That's correct. Yeah, he has imprint of his own. And uh, he did a book uh, uh, largely based on my poster collection, which he uh, got from me, uh, all exploitation uh, uh, posters. And it's uh, a, a work of art. I mean, if, and 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 I know he's going to do the same with Andy and, and with the Ormond. So uh, it's uh, uh, I, I'm just so excited to be doing them, I can't tell you. I
5: can't wait to find out more about the Ormond family because, I mean, I am kind of obsessed with like – Uh, end of the world pictures, you know, rapture pictures and stuff. And, you know, if footmen tire you, oh, my God.
1: Yeah, yeah. Words fail you, right? I mean, that's, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What can I say? I mean, that stuff is, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, I I was lucky to do a whole bunch of interviews in the 80s. Uh, I was going to do the book then, but I got sidetracked with a million zillion things. And it was always in the back of my mind to return and now I'm back there, and, and thankfully, you know, I held on to all those interviews, and uh, I've been going through them, and, uh, it's, uh, hopefully gonna be a hell of a book, that's all
5: I can tell you. To find out more information about the people that made these just amazing films, my God, The Burning Hell is so good, I mean, just so many amazing movies, so. Yeah,
1: you said it, no, yeah, and June Ormond boy, she was just, uh, she was one of a kind, you know, she, uh. She was a, a hard nosed distributor in the in a world of exploitation men. You know, I mean, she was really another character way ahead of her time, and just some of the loveliest dame. I, I really uh, I fell out of contact with her. In fact, I you know this book is sort of uh, me making it up for being a bad friend, you could say, because uh, I meant to do it a long time ago and I never got it done. And of course, June's no longer with us. Tim, thankfully, Tim Ormond, wonderful guy uh he he's helped me a lot with the project and uh yeah they're they're one of a kind one of a kind family one of a kind you know they they, their work uh, trolls through all sorts of weirdness in cinema history and i'm gonna do my damnedest to document every detail
5: well where's the best place for people to keep up with you and, and find out about any of these new projects you're working on
1: Oh boy, I don't know. You know, I got a website, Jimmy dot net, which has some of my uh, other uh, uh pieces about Gary Stewart and Link Ray, a couple other musicians I admire. I'm terrible about uh keeping it updated. But uh, you know, when when uh when the books come out, uh, the Al Green book will be out next August and uh hopefully uh, these projects with uh Mr. Reffin'll start appearing either next year or the year after that. So uh that's the story.
4: Fantastic.
5: Jimmy, thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been great.
1: All right, Mike. Well, thank you so much.
5: All right, we are back, and we were talking about Faster Pussycat Kill, Kill. You mentioned the band Faster Pussycat. I have to say I've never really gotten into the band Faster Pussycat at all. Oh, I one... hated
6: them. I just knew they existed. <laughs> yeah. There's one bad thing that came out of Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. I think it's them. We can go with a better musical thing, and that is that the theme song was covered by the Cramps, which is a far superior band. <laughs>
5: Oh, yeah. And that was one of those funny things, too, because when I because I think I got into the cramps when I was 18 and I didn't see this movie until I was 20. So when the music started up, I was just like, oh, oh, my God, this. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Yeah, it rocks. It's great. And I was really surprised recently watching the uh, Pee Wee's Big Holiday uh, (laughs) thing that he did on Netflix. What was that last Christmas? I think that put it it out (laughs) when all of a sudden these three uh, bust girls show up and uh one of them is definitely varla and the other two are eh, they're kind of close to the other two but really one of them is totally varla so that was really very funny and then even um you know that she uh tells him to pipe down squirrel is pretty good as well
6: yeah that was all straight out of faster pussycat kill kill you know, there there are some really interesting references. You know, it, it, um, if you're a Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan, uh, there's an episode in season two where the character Angel, played by David Boreanaz, goes bad and uh, he kills Miss Calendar, who is Giles's girlfriend at the time. And Giles, you know, goes to, to kill him and Buffy wants to stop him. And Xander's like, why stop him? He's like if 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 Giles wants to get uh, revenge for his murdered girlfriend, well I say faster pussycat, kill, kill. <laughs> <laughs> and he says it without any camp. Like he delivers this line totally dead serious. Nice. It's pretty, pretty, pretty awesome.
0: And didn't Tura Satana make it onto the Simpsons also?
5: Yes. The Simpsons and Mystery Science Theater seemed to be the ones that would just kind of throw in random faster pussycat references to me. I mean, there were so many times where Joel would say, Oh, faster so and so kill kill or faster <laughs> pussycat something something. So it just uh you could you could count on them for that. And then yeah. It seems like The Simpsons, there were a couple good Faster Pussycat references.
6: Dan Klaus, who did 8-Ball, and he also he's most well-known for Ghost World because that became the Terry Zwagoff film. But um, he made a really bizarre graphic novel that's just really out there and abstract. And the title of this graphic novel is Like a Velvet Glove Cast in Iron, which is taken from uh, Billy's line about Varla.
0: But, you know, I think on a certain level, Varla was such a unique character that it's hard to imitate her. You know, you see Marilyn Monroe kind of imitations everywhere, but she's this kind of very soft, feminine, vulnerable, sexual person. But Varla represents something that I think most of America doesn't want to see, which is this powerful, sexual, powerful, you know, woman in charge. So I think in in some ways she... Even though I think she has a following, I think it's harder for people to kind of riff off her in a certain way because it's an image that's just not as readily accepted by kind of the mainstream the way kind of a a Marilyn figure is.
5: Well, I want to throw this out there as well, that not only is it unusual to have a woman be in this position of power like Varla is and like she maintains through almost the entire run of the film and that she projects in this kind of pop culture image now. But to also have an Asian woman doing this, you know, this is very unusual to have a woman doing this plus an Asian woman when we know, you know, like so many Asian stereotypes are to have this subservient woman character where Varla is the complete opposite of subservient. (laughs) There's not a subservient (laughs) bone in her body. She couldn't even pretend to be subservient. No,
6: she couldn't. Yeah, I, I don't see her even acting in that at all.
5: No, I think even if she wanted to get something from somebody, she couldn't even put that on
6: as an act. <laughs> well,
0: she the closest she gets is when she's like talking with Kirk and it's not very subservient at all.
6: <laughs> no, it's just pillow talk baby.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. <laughs>
5: So I wanted to uh um ask you guys, I had sent over a link to a movie I saw years ago called Gas Huffin' Bad Gals, which is a to me it's one of the best parodies of Faster Pussycat Kill Kill.
6: Did you have a chance to see that one? I have not seen Gas Huffin' Bad Gals, but I do have it on the list.
0: Yes, I didn't get to see it either. It is
5: wonderful. It was by this director Harry McCoy, and I know that he ended up like doing good work in Hollywood, you know, making it all this kind of stuff. But it is um, wonderfully shot, just gorgeous, gorgeous cinematography, and it is um, the woman that plays the Varla character so terrific. And then the uh, it's narrated by, um, well, it's narrated and and stars a a man who's uh, basically the detective, uh, Detective Dick, I believe, and um, (laughs) so good. All the lines are delivered just so perfectly, and it is one of those movies that, I I saw it at the MicroCinefest years and years ago, and uh, it's one of those that I still quote today, because there are just so many terrific little turns of phrase in it.
0: dude dumb shoe.
2: So funny, I forgot to hearty, har har ha ha Ha-ha-ha-ha-ha-ha.
5: So, highly, highly recommended. I wish I could say the same thing about the porn parody, Faster Pussycat <laughs> Fuck Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that is one of the... One of those horrible, horrible porn parodies that you should just stay away from. I mean, it kind of starts similarly to <laughs> the movie, but then it just goes from there. And like I, I said, seen
6: that. Faster know.
5: Pussycat is about the tease. It's not really about the fucking.
6: That's true. You know, on that note, which is kind of interesting is, is since Faster Pussycat was in black and white and it had no nudity. For a long time, I assumed this was an early Russ Meyer film, and that it wasn't until later when he could have nudity. Of course, I'm completely wrong. There was certainly he made nudity cuties long before this one, and Mud Honey was before this one. But it, yeah, I had always assumed that this was from an earlier, softer Russ Meyer. But uh, but no, you know this one is definitely in terms of straight up melodrama. It's it's one of his big strongest movies and he was making a movie for the drive-in circuit and he wanted to not have it get cut to shit by censors so he was making a movie that was a little more uh accessible
5: (laughs) (laughs) well i love that it's accessible but beth to your point it's so subversive it Mm -hmm. it is wonderful to have these characters in here and to have and i guess she would actually be an anti-hero like varla Mm -hmm. is just it's wonderful. And it's great that a young woman can go into a theater and see this person on screen and say, this is who I want to be. This is my role model.
0: We'll see. And this is probably why I'm single is, you know, <laughs> I admire Tura Satana. And it's like, no, that's not the kind of role model you're supposed to have. But it was interesting. I I had actually gotten to interview Russ Meyer when he re-released Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, which was about ninety five ninety six, And... We talked about the fact that this was kind of the counterpoint to motor psycho, where motorcycle was three guys kind of on a rampage and then Faster Pussycat was going to be the three girls. And he pointed out that the audience response was completely different. You don't cheer on those guys in Motor Psycho for being bad boys, but you cheer on the you cheer on the women for in Faster Pussycat. You a lot of maybe not everyone, but a lot of people Want to see Varla be the dominant one. And it's interesting that it, I think it hit a a chord with people that it was showing something that was different and that was subversive. And I think that's why that's why it's lasted longer and has, I think, more of a cult following. And it is that subversive nature. It's that sense of rebellion and questioning authority and and defying the status quo and saying, you know, that Linda girl is not what I'm going to be. (laughs) And I'm not going to put up with that. And I think that's what gives it it its lasting power.
6: Do you think that part of the reason this is so effective, too, is that you know those kind of elements aren't exactly what Russ Meyer was really intentionally going for. He just wanted to make an action movie with girls who are playing the the badasses, but it wasn't about being subversive. He just wanted a cool fun action movie
0: on it, a certain level. I think the fact that he wanted to put women in a badass role was a subversive thing yeah, I'm i mean, just,
6: i'm just it was it wasn't an intentional thing it was it was yeah, a, yeah it was a it was just a subconscious thing. It's kind of like with Night of the Living Dead and, and having Dwayne Jones in the lead role. Uh, you know, uh, George Romero wrote that role for just anyone. They chose Dwayne Jones, didn't change it. And because they didn't write to a black uh, hero, you know, he came off as real and really subversive and kind of you know, revolutionary. And I think this way, too, I, I think my only point being is sometimes – you know, we get these movies now, or, or even in between then and now, where people are intentionally trying to be, you know, look at our badass women, and it doesn't come off as strong because it's too heavy-handed with that. I think Russ Meyer was just trying to make a story with these women, and you're right, it, it was, and because of that, it's it's a stronger and more subversive uh, feeling that you get from it because it's more sincere. It's not trying to parade itself as being too political. It just is what it is. And it happens to be something that we're not used to and needs need to see more of. I don't know if Russ was really trying to...
0: Although I will say, I think the thing is, is that Russ Meyer chose to make films outside of the studio system. Yeah. So he deliberately was working in a way that was on a certain level subversive because it wasn't going along with the mainstream. So even though it may have not have been a conscious thing like, oh, I'm going to make a feminist film that's really going to, you know, jar, jar the mainstream, I do think he had it in him that he was already kind of this iconoclast who was saying, mm. like, I'm bucking... The Hollywood system. I'm gonna make films my own way, I'm gonna have my own studio, I'm gonna write my own stuff, direct it, do the cinematography, do the editing. And I mean that's one of the reasons why his films were always so expensive to buy was because yeah. he he owned he all them. of them yeah. and he <laughs> sold them himself and he had to make a certain amount of money from them. But I think that kind of subversive thing was in him, kind of, and even if it wasn't a, a totally conscious thing, I think the decisions he was making had that kind of sense of, like, I'm not really into this whole mainstream thing. And the fact that he was making nudies and stuff like that was also (laughs) subversive. He knew that that stuff was not sitting well with the kind of puritanical mainstream (laughs) of American population. So I I think he knew on a certain level what he was doing was subversive, if not in the specifics.
5: If we look at Motorcycle versus Faster Pussycat, I mean – Try to compare that to something like, you know, the Expendables versus the female version of the Expendables. I know it's not out yet or anything, but <laughs> just the idea of we're going to recast the Expendables with, I don't know, a Cynthia Rothrock or whoever, like these kind of things. That it's would just, be awesome. it's going to feel like a lame parody almost. And, and just, it's, you're going to be, it's going to be so self conscious of what it is that it's just, it's not going to. Ring very true. Recently, my wife was walking upstairs and and she uh, was watching this movie called Mercenaries. And it was all these women. And I was just like, oh, they should have called it Hercenaries. This is comic gold. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway... It was just lame. It was just completely lame because it felt like the female version of The Expendables. And they were so self-conscious of, hey, we're all women and we're doing this thing. We're strong chicks. And it's like, yeah, when you really go for it like that, it doesn't have the same punch as something like Faster Pussycat.
0: Well, I think a couple of things in favor of Faster Pussycat is, first of all, he let those women – have some say in the creation of those characters. He talked about how they ad-libbed some of those lines. Tara Satana had an input on that fight choreography and on how her character should interact with those men. So the fact that he had these women partake in the creation of it, I think, helped make some of that more genuine. And these were women who were go-go dancers who did have to deal with these leering guys making rude comments and probably had fine-tuned the heckling responses you know, over the years with that. <laughs> but I think the fact that they had that kind of input was helpful in making the film unique. And also, Tura Satana's character is still unique even amongst contemporary badass female characters, there just aren't characters like that. And that's why so many of these female versions of male things are feel so forced is because they're not thinking about actually having a character like Varla, where they just are rejecting all this kind of all these kind of ideas. I mean, even I, I think the re-release of Faster Pussycat came out right around the same time that Thelma and Louise came out. And they were talking about how this was this great kind of feminist film and these women were – you know, out on their own and and kind of going. But their characters were completely reacting to things that the men were doing. You know, the, the they kill someone because uh, the one woman was getting raped. They end up having to go on the run because a man steals their money, you know, and their choice at the end is to kill themselves. And, you know, that's not what Varla would have done, and no. Varla wouldn't have been this—you know—these female Ghostbusters. For God's sake, you know? <laughs> she would have been kicking some ass. I, I think she is a, a very is a unique figure in film, and I don't think anybody's really been able to capture that again exactly the same way. I am
5: really hoping because back in I think it was two thousand eight, Quentin Tarantino was all about <laughs> remaking. Faster Pussycat, uh, and actually calling it a remake this time rather than just you know lifting plot elements and doing that. <laughs> and even today, like if you go out and you you Google Faster Pussycat and Quentin Tarantino, they're still talking about it. Like They're like, oh yeah, his follow-up to The Eightful Eight is going to be Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. And it's just like, oh, come on. Just stop it. Do not try to cast Britney Spears as Varla. That's just an insult to everything. And just the only good thing that could come out of that is that more people check out the original but it's still that it's not a good thing and it's not a good idea to try to recapture the magic that was in this film
6: yeah this is lightning in a bottle
5: oh yeah
0: I mean the only person who comes remotely close I think to Tura Satana is Pam (laughs) Greer and she comes close and in some of her black exploitation films she is a pretty formidable woman herself and she she did come I – mean, I don't think any of her films allowed her to be quite as independent and powerful as Russ Meyer let Teresa Tana's Varla be, but she would be someone who's on par.
5: It would almost have to be like a Godzilla versus King Kong kind of yeah. thing. It would have to be <laughs> versus Varla.
0: And imagine if they teamed up together against somebody. Oh, my God.
5: It would have to be like a Mecca Varla.
0: Yeah. <laughs> they could stomp all of los angeles oh
6: man it would it would be over we'd be like nero with the with all of the world burning
0: or they could smother an entire city in their bosom <laughs> <laughs> no one would survive
6: <laughs> what a way to go though yes oh,
0: yeah. well there's actually in those fight scenes there are those shots of tura's bosoms practically slapping him in the face when she's (laughs) karate chopping him and and part of me was thinking that well i guess that's not the worst way to go if you're a guy
6: (laughs) some might pay for that
5: (laughs) i always just look at her jeans and think about the the Pressure on the seams of those jeans you couldn't get tighter <laughs> jeans if you tried
6: man, and she does all these poses where she lifts one leg and puts it on the car in those tight in those super tight jeans it they, those jeans were experiencing some pain themselves <laughs> <laughs> and they're just painted on it's great, and she's in all black It's like Haji uh, being all painted in beyond the valley of the dolls. Oh, yes. Well, that's great, too,
5: though. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's
4: show. Recently, 20th Century Fox had two very heavy ideas. First, make a film called Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Second, get Russ Meyer to write, produce, and direct it. You'll meet three girls, young, beautiful, talented, a tight trio that was the heart and soul of a rock group. Life was sweet, man, but not enough. The whole world was out there just waiting, and the beat inside pushed them to where it's happening. Hollywood, USA. Yeah, it happened all right. They got hooked on a nonstop merry-go-round where the only ticket you need is success. Be a winner, man, or forget it. When they made that first party, it was like too late. The whole thing was moving, reaching out, and they dubbed it. Whites, yellows, and reds were more than just colors, man. They were it. The magic dream pills. The chicks were wild and groovy. The studs were cool and cruel. The eyes so warm. The smile so friendly. But watch the teeth. They bite deep. Faces. So many faces. Calling. Begging. Help me. Love me. Save me. Don't listen. If you hear them, you've had it. Come on. Open your mouth. Wider. Ear. Taste. Life, man. Life. Like it? Hell no. Tough. It's a one-way trip all the way down. (laughs) One little girl turns her back on truth and love. She'll have to make it with pain and eyes that cry rivers. The second finds her heart in the arms of another chick. Don't look for evil in your brother's eye. The third bird finds her man. It's good, very good, but she almost blew it before she learned that simple truth. The boys are here, too. One so sure that love was enough, it isn't. You gotta fight for it or it'll just get up and walk on Another cats hungry, bread and chicks, make them pay. Love is free, but sex isn't. Don't look back, you won't like the view. And what about you, man? What's your thing? You talk weird. What do all those words mean? Who are you? Don't look at me, man. You're not real. It's all here. Love, rape, murder, dope, grass, abortion, suicide. Something for everybody. Now hold it, man. Don't close your mind. This is what living is all about.
1: now and then.
4: The people who make Beyond the Valley of the Dolls come alive are the largest introduction of fresh young talent ever presented in a major motion picture. Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is not a sequel. There's never been anything like it before. If you've been waiting for something new, waiting for a film to shake you into the freaked out, mind-blowing scene of right now, then come and see it, man, and find out why it's called Beyond the Valley of the Dolls from 20th Century Fox. That's
5: right. We'll be back next week with the discussion of another Russ Meyer film, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. We're trying to kick off things right in 2017, especially after the disastrous 2016. Before we go, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Miguel and Beth. Knowing that you two work together, should I just ask you both what you've been up to lately?
0: Sure.
6: Well, yesterday I was crying because (laughs) we were watching this interview with all of the ladies uh, and realizing that uh, two have passed on. So I would be remiss if we didn't uh, dedicate our entire conversation to Tura Satana, to Haji, and, of course, to Mr. Russ Meyer himself. But in terms of self-promotion (laughs) – Um, Do you want to take the self-promotion end?
0: We can both take a little. All right, cool. Uh, I just want to say that I do a podcast called Cinema Junkie um, from KPBS. And Miguel and I together are what we call Film Geek San Diego. And we are in the midst of launching two year-long film programs here in San Diego, uh, a year of John Carpenter Films at the Digital Gym Cinema, and a year of what we're calling Famous Firsts at the Museum of Photographic Arts because it's our first year programming. There and we do this all as volunteers because we just want to show good movies everywhere and get people talking about them.
6: By the time this podcast is released, you know, our, our initial push for uh passes for these two series will be finished, but um, but we'll be selling seats throughout the year. I mean, these are two series that are year long, each one's once a month. Uh, the, the, the one at MOPA, especially, I want people to kind of really come out of their Um, maybe their comfort zones a little bit. With famous firsts, it's almost like cinema school. So we're looking at the history of the form and take and thinking about some defining elements of cinema and the first times those happened. So it might be, uh, the first that we have one that's the first, uh, Tracy and Hepburn collaboration. We have one that is uh, the first, we're showing East of Eden, which is the first film showing uh, starring James Dean. We're showing Merrily We Go to Hell, which is a pre-code directed by Dorothy Arzner. uh, And she was the first woman in the DGA. So that's uh, kind of appropriate for this episode.
0: And then we're pairing that with Ida Lupino's The Hitchhiker, which is the first film that she actually got a screen credit as director for.
6: Dude, that's going to be the best double feature ever. (laughs) Um, We're showing – starting in January here, though, I should start there. In January 13th, we're showing – King Kong, which for me is it, how is that a first? Well, it was a very early talkie, and uh, so we're calling it the first talkie that really transformed cinema. Like this, this is the thing that through
0: special effects.
6: Through special effects, it, it, it's the film that that showed that cinema was capable of making our dreams come true, and uh, and so this is a it's one it, for both me and Beth. It's it's a favorite film, the original 1933.
0: It's one of the few films I ever cry at.
6: Yeah, and Beth does not cry. She has no no tear. I
0: cry as often as Varla. (laughs) (laughs) But when King Kong dies, I cry.
6: (laughs) Uh, We're showing that with a documentary uh, called Long Live the King, which is directed by Frank Dietz and Trish Geiger, who uh, also directed an amazing documentary we showed called Beast Wishes, which is all about the lovely Bob and Kathy Burns. And uh, and so they will be there to talk about that. So we have a lot of great stuff coming on in addition to A Year of John Carpenter, which that one sells itself. But uh, this famous first one is a little bit harder. To, it's a harder sell because, you know, it, we're showing Midnight Cowboy, the first rated X film and last rated X film to get a Best Picture Oscar. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. Uh, these might not be films that uh, immediately get people off the seats, but I'm hoping that uh, that we can change that because, you know, Taken as a whole, it would be a really great series. In keeping with that, of course, I direct the film festival in September, Horrible Imaginings Film Festival, which has its own op- official podcast, the Horrible Imaginings podcast. We are on the Dread Central network now, so you can catch us on DreadCentral.com, and uh, but mostly we are just – Film really geeks. film geeks. We're <laughs> obsessive with the art form of cinema. And not only that, I mean, we could be obsessive with cinema and just sit at home with popcorn on our couches watching it. But both Beth and I are obsessed with the communal aspect of a, a in cinema experience with a crowd who is appreciative and um, and you know a huge screen with great picture and sound and and that's something it might be quixotic, but it's something that we're trying to <laughs> make happen here
5: Well, it sounds very admirable
6: thank you sir. and I, I, I know that you guys have some some great places there in Detroit too like cinema Detroit the, uh, friends of ours so we hope that cinemas across the country. Can still survive in these strange watching movies on your cell phone times.
5: Well, thanks, guys, for being on the show. I really appreciate this. It was great talking to you and finally talking to you, Beth.
0: Yes, thank you. Anytime I can talk about Tura Satana is a wonderful time.
5: I completely agree. And uh, I just, you know, kind of wish that she had been in more movies, especially more movies as good as Faster Pussycat.
0: Definitely.
6: We'll always have (laughs) 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 astro-zombies. So thanks to everybody for
5: listening. If you want, please head on over to the website, projection com where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show. And, uh, you know, you can head on over to Patreon and make a donation if you want. So donors, uh, if... Uh, Things are going right You get early access to the show As long as I'm not running late So just know that And every donation and every rating we get Helps the Projection Booth to take over the world